Welcome to episode number eight of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you find a career you love, start a business, and generally crush it at life. I'm Justin, your host, an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness, and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, very special episode, we have Zach Evans, who turned his passion for piano into a six-figure online business that essentially just allows him to live the lifestyle he absolutely loves. We discuss a lot of different topics in this episode, how we get started with piano, nature versus nurture, talk about being tough, failing faster, how he manages stress, why it's important to ride the wave in business, why he's focusing on violin now versus piano, his funny experience at a Berkeley music camp, so much more. This episode's great, especially for those aspiring entrepreneurs out there. I hope you do enjoy it. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please do leave a rating review over on iTunes. Helps more people listen to the show, find the show, and I would very much so appreciate it. Without further ado, let's get into this episode with Zach Evans. Welcome to the show, Zach. Good to be here. Good to be here. So we actually tried to record this episode, I think back in May, which was like a few months ago, depending on when you're listening to this, and had to deal with audio issues. But we are back. We are back in the building. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what we're going to start with, Zach, is your piano career. When did you even start playing piano? How did that happen? So basically, yeah, started out early on, you know, kindergarten, like every other kid quit by the time, you know, I was still really young um, and got really into sports. My dad's a gym teacher, you know, so we always grew up playing sports and I didn't pick piano back up at all until college. And actually the reason I picked it up, I heard this cover of Lollipop by Lil Wayne on piano and it sounded like beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. Like I have to learn this. And so I basically stared at the computer screen and it was, it was a really hard angle to see, but I would literally just look at what notes he was playing and then just copy it onto the piano. And, you know, my plan was just to learn one song and be cool for my friends, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you're at a party, you can play that one song and be like, cool. But I uh, ended up really enjoying it. So learned another song and another song and, you know, eventually started really getting into it. And I'm a very type A personality, so you know, once I like really get into something, I really want to master it and go all in on it. And I'll keep pulling up different YouTube videos and researching online how to get good at piano. And I kind of fell into this trap where I was pulling from all these different sources. And there might be one random exercise on this, and one site said do your scales, and one site said learn this piece. And that actually you know, later on when I was building my piano course helped me out a lot going through that and realizing what my target market basically goes through all the time. Right. But anyway, after that and after struggling really hard for a while, I ended up switching my major to music and got an actual teacher. And I mean, this guy, phenomenal teacher, played at Carnegie Hall, toured internationally, uh, very well known as a great piano teacher. And he kind of showed me like, you know, okay, for example, for building technique, there's a couple different things you need to build and there's already a system in place that allows you to build a technique. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and pick exercises from all these different sources, let's just use a system that works 
and all these different techniques that help you learn a lot faster and let's just plow through that way. And, you know, so I basically learned piano um, and put up a YouTube video, you know, one or two a week for a good three years starting off. When did you first put up a video? Do you remember when that was? Um, I'm not sure the exact date. It was probably four or five years ago, though. Five years ago. So that was 2013-ish, maybe? Maybe 2014? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. What, com- what compelled you to do that first, that first video? Like that day you did the very first video you put, on, put online? Yeah, it was just, you know, I learned this whole song. It took me like forever to learn because I like, sucked at piano <laughs> back then. I put that much effort into it. I'm going to do something more with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, might as well like put this on Facebook, like show my friends, you know, it was like literally one of those yeah. scenarios. Right. Man, that's crazy. And then you did, so you did one or two a week, every week. I remember that. And you were doing, how did you choose the covers at the time? How did you choose which ones you wanted to play? Originally, it was literally just whatever song I liked. Okay. I'd just go put a cover up. Yeah. Uh, eventually, that evolved as I got further and really had a more of a marketing strategy behind it. Um, one of the strategies I used was you basically have to be either better or first. Hmm. And the truth is on YouTube, being better doesn't necessarily mean that you're at the top of the view list. As right. you probably encountered a lot of times on YouTube, you see the top of the view list and it's somebody that's an average musician. And then you go down and you go to page two and you see someone who's absolutely incredible and you don't know how that happened. Uh, the reality is sometimes being first is more important than being better. Yeah. And if you're the first one that uploads a cover of a certain song or at least within you know that first week, it's a lot easier to get views primarily because yeah. you have no competition. And then once you have those views, then you get ranked higher in the algorithm and it's easier to stay on top. And, and that reminds me of the, the book, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And they, they mention a few different things in there. One of them is being first. One of them is being like, you know, first in a category, for instance, that same type of thinking, which can help you in business. Obviously with, with YouTube, it helped you a lot with you kind of figured out later on how to rank, which you did for different videos, I know. Um, even with the piano stuff, you mentioned getting a mentor, a coach for that. Do you remember how you got them? Yeah, I kind of lucked into it for piano, to be honest, which was, I mean, I originally only went to the school because they recruited me for track, which has nothing to do with music. <laughs> <laughs> just happened to switch my major to music, and they just happened to have a phenomenal piano teacher. Wow. So um, at the school, that's where you had it. Yeah, yeah. Did you have, when you were growing up, who did you have? you have a, co- a teacher there as well? Yeah, I mean, I had my grandpa like the first year, um, but he didn't live close enough. So eventually okay. I just had like the neighborhood piano teacher, who was great. You know, it was a great starting piano teacher for right. sure. And you played for a while, then dropped it, then came back to it. Mm-hmm. Was it tough to come back and like bring it back? Or how was that? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's... It was really, I don't want to say starting from ground zero, because I'm sure I still had some of the muscle memory from back in the day, but it was basically starting from ground zero and relearning all technique and even like the names of the notes. I would have to, I used to have to count up, oh, this is A, and then count the notes to find out where D was as in C and (laughs) E and everything, as opposed to, uh, you know, obviously now where you just kind of recognize it instantly. But yeah, it was pretty much starting from scratch at that point. So yeah, that was... How much of a gap did you have between you playing that first time and then coming back to really playing again consistently? Was it like 10 years, maybe 12 years? Yeah, it wasn't until freshman year of college. So yeah, probably about 10 years. Okay. And then like how far or how, how far along into picking it back up again were you like, I'm really going to go after this and I really want to get better? Obviously, you changed your major. Was that the defining point or when was that? you remember? Yeah, that was really def- the defining point. I remember because originally I was a math major. And I didn't really enjoy it, but it was kind of like, 
oh, there's a lot of jobs, like it's it's an easier path to make money, that sort of thing. <clears throat> um, and I remember just being in math class and thinking, oh, I can't wait till I can go practice. Which is a weird thing because most people hate practicing. Practicing is like the most boring part of, of the music process typically. And I was sitting there like itching to go practice. And at that moment in class, I was like, I got to switch it up. Like there's no way. And I still remember the phone call with my mom and she's like, are you sure you want to switch to music? You know, knowing that it's a, a career that typically doesn't make much money. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. And she was like, all right, you know, I'll support you in whatever you do. But how did you, how did you do that? I mean, you, you knew that it was a career that does not make a lot of money typically, except for the top, top percent, I assume. Um, what were you thinking at that? Like, what was your plan when you switched to music? Yeah, to be honest, there wasn't much of a plan. I okay. just knew I love music and I figured I'll just outwork everybody at some point and yeah. make like, I just figured there's people that make a living in music. As long as I can work as hard or harder than those people, then I should be able to be in the same boat too. Yeah. So I figured I'd work out eventually. Yeah. And I guess, you know, not everyone has that same mentality, which I'm going to go, I'm going to go to that right now then. Where do you think that that came from, that work ethic, that drive came from? Because obviously I've known you since, I think we were just talking about this fourth grade I believe mm -hmm. and you've kind of always had that do you think it's an innate just trait that you always you just have or something else I no I think it's mainly like upbringing and I, I'm a huge like nurture versus nature kind of guy okay. I, don't, I don't believe that we have any sort of insurmountable DNA that we can't get past and and you're just not talented enough. I think you can over, you can just override everything with hard work. Um, for me, I guess I did have the advantage of uh, my dad, who kind of drilled it at, in me at his young age. So my dad's a gym teacher, like I said before. So the thing about being a gym teacher is you hate complaining kids, because gym is the one subject every kid whines and complains. I don't want to run. I don't want right. to do push-ups. Of course. So anytime we would complain, my dad was like not having any of it because he was like. I'm not having my kids turn out like the whiny complainers in my gym class. And he had the best line I still remember. He would say, you know, if you got whined about something, I don't want to eat my vegetables. I don't want to do this. He'd just look at us and be like, good thing you're tough. Just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> Boom. But like looking back, it was like the most ingenious line because it was like, okay, he's giving me a compliment. Right. So you can't really be mad. Like it makes you want to be tough. But at the same time, it's still saying, I'm not going to help you out of this problem. You got to figure it out. You got to put the work in. You got to grind and figure it out. And I think just having that constantly as a child for sure, like helped me develop, you know, somewhat of a work ethic. And then was it just that repeated nature? I just kept bringing those things up. And then like, what else do you think contributed to it? Because I know you have a great work ethic. Um, was there anything else you think just contributed to that work ethic? That, I feel like that probably planted the seed for you where you're like, Oh yeah, that's this is just normal to work hard. But what cemented that or what kept that even going more, do you think? Yeah, I think it was just other things in my life that I would work hard and I would have success and then eventually, you know, it became just part of my belief system that oh, I can out outwork a problem. Especially track was definitely a big thing where um, I remember it was sophomore year, you know, not even going. Well, I went to state as an alternate. I was, yeah. you know, second alternate. You were on that same trip with me. Right, I remember. Fun um, trip, by the way. Fun trip, very fun <laughs> trip. But, you know, not anywhere close to going to state an individual event. 
And then I just decided after that year, I want to make it. So all winter I trained, I worked hard. And then next year I placed fifth in the 300 meter hurdles. And just seeing that happen of, oh, I'm not good. I worked hard, now I'm good. It, it was definitely a pivotal moment in helping me b really believe that, okay, if I don't like something in life, the answer is just work harder yeah. and then it'll work out. It's almost like you just go grind. Just go <laughs> grind, baby. <laughs> so that cemented it. So you think that sports in general, though, was probably a big contributor because it allows you just to kind of see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's something I think any young person or if you're a parent here, think about your kids, like, if you can get them to something competitive or sports or something that they can compete at and then also have a chance to just improve. So track, like you mentioned, is a great sport because it doesn't matter. Like you could be a distance runner and not that fast, but you can work hard and see the improvements, like no actual numbers improvements, mm -hmm. which I think you need to have to actually be able to improve and keep, like, keep moving forward and then build that work ethic. It doesn't happen otherwise. It just seems like that. At least. Yeah, I agree. And especially with track, just because it's not like a fun sport you know what i mean like like nobody like runs a 400 meter dash and like oh i feel great when i'm on that final hundred and i'm just breathing and feel like i'm gonna die you know there's no 400 meter fun runs out there yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the only literally the only way to have fun is to see that progress of oh i started out at this time yep. i worked for three weeks now i'm at this time now i work another three weeks now i'm at this time and that's really the only like fun of it other than you know maybe the competition and the social aspect right winning is fun improving is also fun mm -hmm. both, yeah both of those things help you which it's one of those things too where i think about if you don't experience some success early in something like it can it can ruin you absolutely ruin you mm -hmm. because you don't have anything to base your your thoughts on hard work or your thoughts on you know pushing through on because you think i look at so many different quote-unquote successful people who have created big companies or done great things athletically, if they would have quit early, like that would have changed their entire life. But they had some type of success early on, whatever that may have been. And that helped them kind of propel forward, which I, I think about in my own life too, like with any little success I've had, I think I was lucky to have been a kid that grew tall early because it allowed me to have some success early on in sports where it was like, oh, okay, like, yeah, like, I didn't think it was just because of my height. I was like, thought I worked for it too, and that kind of helped propel. But with your piano stuff then, so you had the work ethic already, which we'll get into all of the business side of it, but I still want to get back to the piano playing part of it. At what point did the playing lead to the business part of it? You know what I mean? Like, where you're like playing piano, playing piano, and you thought, <coughs> okay, wait a minute. I'm going to do more than just play piano. I'm going to teach people piano. I'm going to make this into something. How did that happen? Yeah, I think at first kind of started when I started putting up some YouTube videos and then figured out, oh, you can make money off YouTube. You know, if you get enough views, they start paying you. So for the longest time, that was my plan in college was to build my YouTube channel up big enough where the YouTube revenue was making me a living. Uh, of course, soon I found out <laughs> when I started crunching the numbers after like two years of putting up videos <laughs> that to get to that level of views, I mean, you need an insane amount of views a day and it's it's not really a business plan. There still is a lot of kind of, I don't want to say luck, but, you know, being ranked high in their algorithm, especially as, you know, I w when I was coming up, that's when the iPhone was just coming out. And videos becoming easier and easier, which means there's going to be more and more competition 
every year and it's it was just a matter of do I want to stay in that race or try to figure out some smarter way um, to make money off the views I was getting. Right, besides just, just the actual views, which is even with uh, with like podcasting and other stuff, it's not necessarily just the views themselves. Like that leads to something else. Even people who write a book, like a book can lead to other things, whether that's speaking, whether that's like then a course or something else. It's like an opening, a gateway to other things. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how many views or how big your channel was when you decided to kind of like build your own stuff to like make more money off of? Yeah, I think I was getting around like 500 to 1,000 views a day, which, well, I don't know if that sounds like a lot to some people, but uh, it's it might sound like a lot, but in terms of like the money you make off of it, it's, it's actually very small. I mean, I was making 10 to 20 bucks a month off the YouTube revenue, which is, of course, nowhere near what I needed to like, you know, take it to the next level, obviously. Right. <laughs> yeah, eventually. So that's not bad. I mean, 500 though, I, I've had a small YouTube channel for some things, and I every little bit you're like celebrating like a hundred like yes for sure you're like 200 yeah. so even that is like pretty good 500 did you have like how many videos did you have by that point in time almost 100 i think at that point i was like 80 or 90 or something really yeah and that was in like two years um yeah so pretty consistently like one a week for sure on average at least mm-hmm. damn that's that's nuts and then with starting the business so mm-hmm. I, I know there's a long process of creating your first course. How did you decide what you wanted to create first? Yeah, so basically, um, my kind of like advantage in college, because coming into college, uh, the, the piano professor actually barely even let me into the program. Like literally, I like auditioned, or I emailed him to audition, and I was like, yeah, can I just play like a, like a pop song? Like I think I was going to play this Jason Derulo song. And he just he's, emails me back one sentence. No, bring Beethoven. Like, signed Ellie Caldwell. Like, that's it. Like, nothing, you know? Um, so I was thinking, oh, shoot. Like, like I don't know how to play this stuff. And I, like, crammed together this Beethoven in, like, three weeks. And it was, it was like, looking back, it was terrible. Like, it was not good at all. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if he just saw something in me or if he was just being nice to me at the moment or what. But after the audition... He basically comes up and, I mean, he's this big, intimidating Romanian dude, you know, and he's just like, I'm going to give you a shot in the program. I'm going to let you in, but I'm just going to let you know, I'm going to treat you just like I treat all the performance majors. You don't get any kind of easy way out. I'm going to treat you like everybody else. And I'm like, that's all I need. All I need is a shot, you know, get me in the door. And then I left and I started panicking, thinking, how am I going to learn and, you know, get this good? So... At that time, it was, okay, I have to either outwork everybody or work smarter, not harder. And it ended up having to be both. And that's when I really got into accelerated learning and taking a lot of, you know, strategies that have been used in other industries on how to learn faster, um, how your brain works, little mental hacks and stuff to help you learn things faster, and then applying them to piano. And over the course of the next five years, I became one of the best in the studio just because you know, half of it because I'm working harder and half of it because I'm using all these new techniques I learned. So to get back to your question, the first course I created was just a course or an ebook actually that basically details all these techniques to help you learn piano faster. Because that was kind of my competitive advantage. That's, you know, was my thinking going in. Where did you learn at that time? You say you learned different hacks and different tricks and everything as well as obviously putting a ton of work 
do you remember what you did to learn those? You're just like Googling different things and like piano hacks before you ranked for stuff. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Like, what did you do? <laughs> well, yeah. So it was half and half. So half came from books outside the piano industry, which a lot of them were honestly like business type of books or, or, or almost like self-development books on how to learn skills faster. And the other half came from, there's these piano forums and like, they're very good and very bad because it's a form anybody can comment. So, you know, it's yeah. like you have people who know nothing what they're talking about commenting and you have people who are very well versed in piano commenting. So it's a matter of basically digging through all these forums and, you know, using all these different search terms and finding these little strategies. And I remember the computer lab was on the second floor and my practice room was in the basement in, in college. So I'd go up, I'd learn some new practice strategy and I'd run downstairs and <laughs> I'd try it out and... I would track everything out of these big um, spreadsheets that I printed out and it would take, okay, I'm working on this scale, you know, I'm having it at this BPM, which uh, BPM is beats per minute. So basically in piano to see if you're improving one easy way is to take a metronome, which clicks at a consistent tempo and you can see, okay, how fast can I play, for example, a scale? And then you can try some kind of technique on your scale, practicing it in a certain way and then you can see, hey, can I play the scale faster after running it through this technique? And so it tests all these different techniques and some were like complete waste of time. <laughs> there was one I spent like an hour and a half on and just didn't get, it, I think it made my scale worse actually because it like <laughs> drilled in some bad habits. But, um, but then some of them worked incredibly well. And then once you have a system of learning one scale, uh, then you just take the same exercise and you just kind of, you know, use them on everything else that you're practicing. Right. And you mentioned something there that people might gloss over, but I can't because there's too many details I want to know about. <laughs> oh, you're like, yeah, just a spreadsheet, enter these things in there. When did that start with the spreadsheets, the details? I know you're very, very detail-oriented in that way, very like analytical in that way. Do you remember when that started or how that started? Yeah, definitely from working out back in high school. And I know like we had um, some some crazy workout sessions. And we would always like, you know, start of each summer or whatever our training plan was really going and say, okay, we have seven days during the week. How are we going to split this up? Maybe it's Monday's lifting, Tuesday's is speed and plyometrics, Wednesday's blah, blah, blah. So fun. Yeah. Those are so fun. It was, it was, but it, it was a lot of uh, really mental work of figuring out, okay, this might be the best workout, but maybe I can't do this workout two days in a row because I'm tired from this workout. So I have to put this workout a day later, but then it's like, what can I fill in in that extra time I have that's going to hit a different part of my workout and still help me improve and help me get faster improvement while still resting this other, you know, metabolic system that I have, for example. Right. And that comes in hundred percent to piano too, because it's like, okay, I can be working on some right hand work, some arpeggio work. And now you need to kind of let that sink in. And while that's sinking in, you go to your left hand, you work on something with your left hand. So it, there's a, so much crossover between working out for sports and working out for piano. It's funny because even looking back in those times, one, they were so exciting. It's so fun to strategize and everything. I think we've both taken that to, like, back with us to today even. Like those, those like strategize, okay, here's seven days in a week. How do we make the most out of these seven days? Like we still do like the exact same thing in that way. It just like we're no longer playing sports. Mm-hmm. It's just a business world now that we're looking at. Okay, how do I structure my day to get new podcast guests, 
record guests that I actually have scheduled already, edit these episodes, do all these different things. And like, it relates right back to those workouts. So I remember we had spreadsheets on spreadsheets <laughs> yep. on spreadsheets and like your nasty handwriting on sheets of paper. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think I had, I think I was when I, when I was moving to Los Angeles, I think I found like some of those papers, some of like workout papers and stuff. <laughs> and like some of them are definitely yours because I can see the writing so bad. <laughs> dude, you gotta show me those, dude. I those will bring me back for I real. Know. I gotta show, I gotta find all of them. There's, <laughs> there's some good ones in there. I hope I didn't throw all of them away, but uh, there, there's definitely some good ones there. But I remember, you, so you mentioned the, the ebook. That was your first, your first product was an ebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take me through the launch of that and what you're thinking and how it went. Oh man, yeah, it took me like way too long to write. It took me like six months to write or something. Um, granted I was at school and everything too, yeah. but it took me like really long time. I made it all fancy, you know, like did all the, the, uh, formatting and everything and finally launched it and I got nine sales. Made like 120 bucks or and something like that. And he retired and he never did anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was kind of like, you know, at the time it was kind of, it, it was a little bit, you know, of a downer, obviously, spending all that time and not making any, any sales off of it. Right. But it kind of helped me learn the fact that it's not just about what you're teaching, but it's also about how you package that and how you sell that and how you can um, basically take what you're teaching and make it so somebody gets excited about it. And that book is still one of my most, I'm still very proud of the content of that book but it's one of my least selling uh, courses and books on my site compared to everything else. And you know, knowing that, so you had the nine sales and you're obviously feeling a little bit down from that because you're like, you had probably great expectations as I have with everything I've ever done. Like you have these great expectations with stuff, right? And then it doesn't do what you thought it would. Mm-hmm. How do you rebound from that? How do you move forward from that? What did you do? Yeah, so uh, one thing that helped I think is at the time I was either listening to a lot of podcasts or reading a lot of like business books. I don't know which one it was, but in every book, it basically just talks about, you know, failing faster. And the sooner you fail, the sooner you're going to realize your mistakes and the sooner you can learn from them to go on. And I think one of the big benefits, honestly, was not knowing that my book would fail early on so that I would just do it and then I would learn from it. Because um, I, I think if I wouldn't have done it, I would have probably tried the strategy of, oh, let's learn how to do business first. And then let's do it as opposed to let's do it. And that is the learning because I don't think you can learn business or many skills without just doing them. And that's how you learn them. And then you can read as you go along and figure out, you know, different ways to improve it. But you've got to just like put your head down and do the work first. Yeah. To that point, it seems like in almost any, any industry, it's the exact same way. You almost need to like, you have to do a certain amount of work first. Just not thinking about anything, just doing the actual work. And then you can learn and like, you know craft it and make it better. Because so, I just interviewed someone who will be on the podcast soon, if he hasn't before this episode, uh, Rob. And he's actually was a comedian, a stand-up comedian. And he mentioned the same thing. He just started doing stand-up. That's how he learned. Like He just started doing stand-up. He didn't think about, like, how do I do stand-up? Let's read books on stand-up. Let's spend six months deciding on how to become a stand-up comedian. He's like, I want to <laughs> do stand-up. And so he did like this show, and then he just kept doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. And it seemed like it helped you a lot to just get a product out there, start doing something because you know you're interested. And then once you have that out there, you obviously want to make it better. And then you go dive in. 
but you, don't, you can't just dive in on the, the learning side first too much and not mm-hmm. put anything out there. Otherwise, you're going to constantly be saying, I'm going to do X, Y, Z and never actually do anything. Yeah, and honestly, if I would have known from the start how much work it would have taken to like build my business, like there's a good chance I wouldn't have started. So it's almost better not knowing too much yeah. and then just doing it and then like, oh wait, it's actually going to take a little bit longer than I thought. And you do that and you're like, oh wait, actually it's going to take even longer. And that way you're, you still have that carrot dangling right in front of you because <laughs> you don't know like, oh, this might take like a year and a half to set up the whole thing and get it running. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss in that way. Mm-hmm. You almost don't, yeah, you just don't want to know. Just accept that it's going to take hard work. And you take it one day at a time mm-hmm. and you just keep going <laughs> forward and like the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, just like Travis Pine mentioned episode number three of this podcast, he said like he always just wanted to keep moving forward and try something because if it didn't work, there's always going to be the next thing and the next thing. Like just always something else. But if you stop and you're screwed, there's nothing else you can do. But Yeah. And the way I look at it too is like, okay, let's say there's like a hundred people in your niche trying to do what you're going to do. Maybe by creating that first product, there's probably like, you know, 80% of people that never even create their first product. Okay, so now you're in the top 20%. And then your product fails. So then how many of that top 20 people are going to be weeded out by their first product failing and they don't have the tenacity to make their second one and keep learning, keep growing? There might be out of that, you know, 20 people, 18 of them give up after the first product. So now I'm like, every time I keep pushing I'm just putting myself into that more 1% category that you have to be in to succeed basically you're like yeah how many people have gone that far into the rabbit hole Mm -hmm. once you get there less competition because no one's done it and then you're just going to break through eventually yeah and speaking of breaking through you eventually did break through in your business and you know got to the point now where you're at which is tremendous but going from that first product to what was next after that yeah, so basically after the first one, um, I figured out that I basically needed to market it better and make it accessible to people. And one of the big kind of cornerstones in business is you have to solve a problem. And what I didn't realize is people aren't sitting there practicing piano thinking, I have a problem, I need more practice strategies. They don't, most people don't even know that these practice strategies are out there, you know, unless you're really taken with a good teacher. Um, so my second book, I basically took a lot of the practice strategies from the first book and put the, put the, uh, applied them to scales. So the entire book, it's called lightning path, lightning fast piano scales. And it's just taking all these practice strategies and applying the scales. And then that book, I learned the marketing it, uh, for Amazon and it ended up becoming an Amazon bestseller. And that kind of really gave me the confidence to go on with like my future courses. Right. What were the future courses? Um, so basically, to get into that, <laughs> I'll go through the whole there, thing. There, there's a lot. So, so the book did really well, but if you know anything about um, Kindle books, they're typically priced around like $2.99, $4.99. It's a very small price point. So even selling a lot of those, like it wasn't by any means making a living, um, even doing really well in the category mm-hmm. I was in. So I went, I was in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. I was interning down there and I went to this meetup group that was like an entrepreneur meetup group. And there's had speakers every week and stuff like that. And one of the speakers was talking about membership sites and it seemed like a perfect fit for piano. I mean, people are already used to the model of piano lessons where you pay weekly or you pay monthly for lessons. So, you know, why not create piano courses on this that are online, especially thinking 
okay, like it made sense in my head. If you get, you know, five people to sign up at 20 bucks a month, now you're making a hundred bucks the first month, but let's say the next month you get five new people to sign up. Okay. Now you're making 200 bucks a month and you just keep adding to your monthly income until you hit a point where, you know, you're making a living off it and you can quit your job. Which is what you eventually, 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 did. Yeah. eventually did. But even so launching those things, once you did, you did more of your homework after you had gone through this whole entire thing to look at the marketing, to learn actually how to market this, how to do it well, how to actually solve a problem, but in a way that they know, like that's enticing to your actual customer. Basically you mm-hmm. learn this and then you spent some time building <laughs> these, this membership site. I think you mentioned it was like six months, wasn't it? Yeah. Membership site. Yeah, something like but that. But you didn't start with, you started with like one course, wasn't it? And then you progressed to something else. Yeah. So basically, the first course was um, a technique course, basically, which would teach you all these uh, technique strategies. Um, it was called well, it's called Project Captivate. Actually, it was it was basically the crazy fast runs, riffs, and fills that could make you sound pro on piano. Um, but I got like halfway done with that course. And then I was like, oh man, like this is kind of doing a disservice to people because if I don't teach them the fundamentals of technique and basic scales and arpeggios, they're going to try to learn all this fast stuff and they're going to have bad technique because they don't have a foundation. So then I thought, okay, I really need like a basic technique course too. So then, you know, I created the technique mastery course. And as I was coming up with the marketing and the sales pages for those and doing all the work on, you know, really diving into what does my customer want? I kind of started realizing, okay, a lot of people just want to learn to play by ear so they can just hear songs and play songs and it's a lot more fun than just learning scales or something like that. So I started building this play by ear course, even though in hindsight, I probably should have just launched what I have and then came back to that later. But uh, at the time I was like, well, I'll just finish this play by ear course and then, you know, then, then it'll be good. But of course, halfway through that, I'm realizing man, I keep trying to bolt on these mini music theory lessons because you kind of need to learn music music theory in order to really play by ear well. So I'm like, I really need a full music theory course too. So it was just one on top of the other. And then I also ended up creating a video course for the original Supercharge book that I had, Supercharge Your Piano Practice, that original book. So I ended up with like five courses and it took me like six months to create, you know, waking up at like 6 a.m. every day and getting home from the office at like, seven or eight yeah I, I was actually gonna ask you that next what was your schedule like more in detail like through those months so you're you're working you're working full-time as you're doing this right mm-hmm. how do you decide when you want to work and like how much work to do when to stop how much on weekends to work because like something i always struggle with like okay like do i wake how early do i wake up and how late do i stay up to keep working on this today versus tomorrow you can work on it more like how do you personally decide that yeah so what I always do with my big goals and I kind of learned this from piano because piano is very much you take your whole song and you break it up into very small chunks you learn each chunk and you put them back together as a whole song Uh, so I took my courses and broke them all out in individual steps so for example one of my courses um, maybe it has let's say 20 lessons in it okay so for each lesson I'm gonna need a video I'm going to need possibly like a PDF cheat sheet. Um, I'm going to need the copy for the page, what I'm actually going to say, and then breaking those up even further. So for each video, for example, I have to write out the script and figure it out. Then I have to record the video. Then I have to edit the video. 
then I have to upload and put it on the site. And for each of those individual steps, I have a little sheet that outlines each of those and the estimated time to completion. So it might be, okay, so writing the script might take an hour, you know, recording the video, probably an hour or two, editing the video, probably two hours. So then I know, okay, each video is gonna take approximately four hours. So then I can figure out exactly how long the course is gonna to take to create. And then I can go into my calendar and say, okay, how many hours do I have to work on this? And then I can literally fill in every single part of the calendar where, okay, Monday morning, you know, from six to seven, I'm gonna write the script for the first video. From seven to nine, I'm gonna record the first video or whatever it is, and I can literally plan out the entire thing. Of course, it never goes to plan, and it always takes probably like 1.5 to two times what you plan to create it, but it at least gets the ball rolling and gets you um, an estimation of how yeah, long it's gonna take. it gives you a framework, and then almost like one of those things where just mentally it helps you to know like, okay, this is doable. Like, I just gotta do this thing today, and then the next thing tomorrow, and then I'm gonna eventually finish it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like. Do you, are you like a morning, at the time at least, when you were working full time? So everyone wants to start a side business or a business while they're working, like I can't, I don't have time, which I really struggle with hearing that because I just want to punch in the face or something. <laughs> but like there's time somewhere. There's always time. But how did you decide on, oh, I'm going to do morning, I'm going to do evening, like how do you work best? Yeah, mornings are always like by far the best part of my day in terms of getting stuff done. Um, and I know some people are more night people, but for me, those first like four hours of the day are critical. So I would always wake up at six and about six to nine, I would work on, uh, my own piano stuff. And then nine, I'd go into work and it'd be nine to five. And then after work, I would stay a couple extra hours. And of course those hours, since I was tired, I would schedule the parts of the course that were easier to do. Yeah. Maybe it's just like a formatting thing, you know, but it doesn't take a ton of mental energy um, to do, but the, the hard stuff, like really planning all the videos and scripting them out would come in the morning. And there's that most like Monday through Friday, that was basically your schedule or what? Yeah. My, Monday through Friday. And then Saturday and Sunday I would do like six to eight hours usually. Okay. And then on top of that, to be honest, a lot of times during my work day, whenever I had an extra second or, you know, a couple extra minutes, I would definitely go in <laughs> and kind of work on it, work sure. on my own stuff. And right. You know, and that took that took you five or six months to actually finish it. Yeah, but you didn't realize it was gonna be that long. No, I thought it was gonna be <laughs> a month or two. You know, like, and then there's the other side of like figuring out like setting up the website and taking credit card payments and how do you set up membership levels and all that stuff. Which my biggest solution to that is just take a Saturday and like go to Starbucks, buy like a large coffee, whatever grande, whatever they call yeah. it at Starbucks, and. Just say like, I'm not leaving this spot until I figure this out. <laughs> it's the most annoying thing, but like, you know, it's, it's like anything you else, you get it. it done. Do you remember, I mean, for details perspective, what um, what software were you using at the time to even do the membership site, do you remember? Yeah, it was a Wishlist member. So it was a WordPress website, and then Wishlist member is a plugin that went into the site, and then I was using ClickBank to take payments at the time. ClickBank, okay. And yeah. by the way, guys, uh, justgogrind.com slash podcast will have all the show notes, and so you can click on Zach's episode. I'll include all the notes, all, all the links to all these things, so you don't have to like frantically write down all these. But So that was the original thing you, you did, but mm -hmm. then how did that transform into what other things did you, what other software did you use later? Yeah, so nowadays I use Entreport, which is basically a huge CRM, which gets all the contacts, membership levels, and then that connects with Stripe, which is another payment processor. Okay. But basically, Entreport does all the work, but it's expensive. You know, it start, I think it starts off at like 
300 a month. So starting out, it didn't make sense. But then once I started making some money, it's like, it was just way too much of a hassle doing it the way I was doing it. And it made sense for everything to just be housed in one, yeah. one database. And how did you decide? So even when you started making some money, well, you mentioned there, okay, you didn't actually mention this yet. So how did you actually grow once the course launched and you, how did you get the word out? Yeah. So originally, obviously on all my YouTube videos, I posted a little link. Um, I had a free course and basically if you like the free course, you can sign up for the, the premium. And the original free course was called the seven day piano challenge. And it was like seven different lessons. And at the end you could buy one of the courses. Um, and at the same time I was working at a digital marketing company and running pay-per-click ads on Google and YouTube and Facebook and stuff like that. So I learned all that stuff at the company so then it just made sense. Hey, I might as well apply this to my business. Um, and that definitely helped spur the growth, growth a lot. Where'd you get the money for that at the time? So it was actually kind of funny. I started off as um, an intern. So I was literally making like minimum wage. I think it was like, it was like a total of like 1200 a month. I was basically paying rent, you know, surviving and maybe had an extra like 50 bucks into the month to like save in my emergency fund. Um, and after two months, I worked really hard as an intern because I really wanted to get hired on. And they hired me on at 35,000 a year salary, which to me, I was like, man, I'm loaded now, 35,000 a year. You know, and, and I was making, I went from like 1,200 a month to about 2,400 a month, you know, after they took out taxes and everything. So my thought was, cause I was building my business. Okay, I'm already used to living off this 1,200 a month. Why don't I just take a thousand a month and just put it, put it all into ads and just, you know, look at it into it as some cost, and this is just the cost of doing business. Um, so that was my first kind of marketing spend. Yeah, I mean, I remember ever since I've known you, you're a very frugal man, and that definitely helps you in a business perspective from that because, like, then you can put money into the business to actually help it grow. Mm -hmm. What else is like, how are you gonna get customers? There's a whole other way if you're doing free, which is what I've almost always done, mm -hmm. is you know, content marketing, which is a whole different thing, but you chose the pay route, which obviously helped you a lot and that's another like lesson for people trying to start a business like you need to be frugal to then put the money in the business also where i wanted to go with that was once you're once you're spending money on ads how did you decide to either keep spending money on advertising or increase your you know your standard of living like how does that change yeah so my first thought was okay I'm always going to put a thousand months, you know, for the first like three days, I was like, I'm just going to commit like three to six months to do this and always put a thousand month. And then whatever I made off of it, now I can put more. So for example, if I put a thousand in and like the first month, I probably made like 200 to 300 back on people actually buying courses, which, you know, obviously sucks. You lose 700 <laughs> bucks. But then the next month I put another thousand in plus that extra $300. So now I'm spending a thousand three hundred. But on top of that, you know, since I was testing ads and everything, now my marketing funnel is getting tighter and I'm wasting less money on ads that don't work and I can pick the winners. So now out of that 1300, I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but maybe I made like 800. So now the next month, now I have $1,800 to spend and my ads are running better than they did the previous month because, you know, obviously I'm um, continuing to refine the funnel and everything. So now maybe I, I make, a thousand finally a month and you know eventually you work to a point where you're making a positive ROI right and, and then once you hit that period now you can really spend you know it theoretically you can spend as much money as you want on ads as long as you're 
getting the ROI back on the back end. Yeah. Do you remember how long it took to be uh, profitable? Yeah, it didn't take Possibly. me that long, which was probably <clears throat> mainly because I had so much experience running ads um, at my job. But I think it was like three or four months where my ROI was hitting break even for my ads. Okay. And how many like months or years were you in digital marketing when you started like doing running the ads for your own stuff? It was only like it was probably nine months, okay. six to nine months. Something six like to nine that. months of like running accounts for different companies, whatever at your job. And that gave you the baseline skills. Do you say, so you, you'd say you were probably like rather proficient in digital marketing when you started. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I knew, because uh, one of the things for running ads is like just navigating the interface is super confusing and figuring out, oh, what's the difference between cost per click and cost per link click on Facebook, for example, and like little things that are extremely confusing. Um, and also knowing targeting, because when you go into, for example, Facebook, there's like a million targeting target demographics, lookalike audiences, topics, interests, and kind of knowing where to start with that was a huge advantage too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, anyone, anyone trying to start a business, especially an online business, I guess even if you were like an actual in-person business too, learning ads or having someone who knows ads, and like pay-per-click and stuff is so incredibly valuable. It's the same thing like at Clark Toys when I was there, like running Facebook ads for them was like, one of those things where you're like, wait, we weren't doing this really before? And then you implement it, you're like, this seems like genius. Like, yeah. <laughs> like why didn't we do this? But it's, it's incredibly helpful. And you can use those skills then in your own company, your own business, per se, which is exactly what you did. And you know, not to ruin the story, you eventually quit your job. Now, leading up to quitting your job, how did you get to that point where you're like, I'm actually going to quit my job and just live off of piano money? Okay. Yeah, so originally my thought was, okay, once I'm making double what I'm making my job per month, then I'll feel safe enough to quit. Because like, if you're making the exact same amount and you quit and then you have a couple bad months, like that could suck, obviously. Uh, it's actually funny <laughs> so I waited until I was making, actually I waited until I was making double, then I even stayed on another three or four months just thinking, well, now I'm making double the money plus my salary so now I can really hedge my bets and build up an emergency fund and that kind of thing before I you know, quit my job and really go for it. But the day I quit, I had like a terrible day. I remember I was making like pretty good money off of it and then all of a sudden I made like one fourth of what I typically make in a day and the next day was really bad too and I kind of freaked out and I was like, shoot, did I quit too early? Uh, but it ended up just being two like really bad days and then from there on, it you know, went back up and I was kind of relieved. Oh but it, it was like, I literally called my mom, you know, and told her I quit my job. And then like, I was freaking out, like, am I gonna have to call her back and say, actually false alarm, <laughs> business isn't too hot right now. <laughs> like, guys, do you, do you want me back? Yeah, so it kind of freaked me out, but uh, it ended up working out, so. What were you thinking? I mean, leading up to those, I guess the days you were gonna like, tell your boss, you are like, eventually you're gonna tell your boss, like, I'm gonna quit. like. Were you, what are you thinking? You're just like watching numbers patiently every day. You're like, I can do this. I can do this. Like, what's going through your head? Yeah, it was definitely a cool feeling. But honestly, I was almost like, I was a little bit sad leaving the company just because I had so many friends there and we had so many good times. Um, it was more of just like the sense of accomplishment for sure, though. Like watching the numbers go up and thinking like, I did it. Like put in all this work, like years of work and it finally, boom, it happened, you know? Yeah. But there definitely honestly was like, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed my job for the most part. There's obviously parts like any job you don't enjoy, but sure. it, it was kind of sad leaving all the people I worked with and everything. It's got to be a, a big adjustment. How was it? Like, like, like 
you quit was on a Friday is your last day, I assume, like the, uh, something like that. So that next Monday, <laughs> like what were you thinking? How did that go? Do you remember that day? Yeah, I just remember. Well, I don't remember the Monday specifically, but like right when I quit, I just remember going home, like waking up the next morning, just laying on my bed and putting, <laughs> like all these accounts that I'm like putting out fires on and like clients getting mad. Like I never have to deal with that again. <laughs> it was it was definitely a cool feeling at first. Yeah, I mean, how did that? How did you get in a workflow, a work like schedule again with growing your business? Then once you became this entrepreneur who had no longer had a day job, like you were done with the day job, you were free, you're like laying in bed, like I don't actually have to get up if I didn't want to. But how long did it take for you to get, get back in a groove? Or like, was it like right away you started working the business again? No, I'm, that first week was a lot of Netflix. <laughs> a lot of Netflix. <laughs> and a lot I'm of not gonna lie. I was relaxed and just celebrating. I was like, you know, after all, especially because all those months in the beginning, like you're, I literally put in six months of work and like, there's always this fear in the back of your head. Like, what if just nobody buys this? Like, you don't know. You can put in all that work and then literally not get a single sale. And like, it's scary, you know? And it's a very up and down process where you get super excited because you have this new idea and you get so high off of it. And then you get so low thinking, man, what if nobody buys this? Like, what if I just think this is a good idea, but nobody else does? And so that first week was definitely just like, like, you know, relaxing and just like celebrating and feeling good about it. Um, but honestly, after a week of watching Netflix all day, you start to like yeah. hate your life for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and I mean, it, I mean, honestly, like building a business is, is fun. And I think any entrepreneur would yeah. attest to that fact. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. So that always like reminds me of every time I hear that type of thing, it's like Elon Musk talking about after he sold his first company. And people are like, like, what are you going to do? Whatever. He's like, well, I'm not going to like sit on a beach all day and not do anything mm-hmm. because the type of people who start businesses and sell businesses are driven type A people anyways. Mm-hmm. They're not going to sit back for too long. So like you mentioned, you had that week of Netflix and chill. You're like, just let it sink in and then it's back to work basically, right? Yeah. And then what is your schedule? Like, I'm always like really interested in the schedule and everything because I think it applies to anyone could do it then. They see like, oh yeah, that's the schedule. You can just do that. So how did you decide on like how much I'm going to work on the company now that you had this whole new life, like you're done with the job, this whole new life, this open, you can do anything you want with your time. How did you get, decide like, okay, I'm going to start working on this two hours a day, like eight hours a day, uh, 10 hours a day. What was that like and how did you decide what to do? Yeah, I don't remember my exact initial schedule. Uh, I do know throughout the course of not having a job, I bounced between like a ton of different schedules, everything from, oh, work four hours, take a break, work four hours later to, um, you know, have a week where I just work like 12 hour days and then take the next week off. And I've tried a lot of different things. And the best one I found in terms of sustainable, in terms of if you want to just go month after month is honestly wake up, work four hours, and then you're done. So wake up, I'd wake up probably around eight, work around eight to noon. And then, you know, eat lunch, uh, nap, workout. And then like what I do nowadays, I do that. And then I have this optional period after that where, you know, it's either hanging out with friends, being social, or usually I just continue to work after that, but at a less frantic pace. Right. Which I think is important. I actually wanted to ask you about that. I know there's been times where you've been like more stressed in the business or whatever, as you continue to grow this company. Um, In those moments, like, 
how do you manage that or how do you manage you know when you feel like there's just you're doing too much or like you're like do you just step back and like take a week off again or how have you done in the past yeah for me the best relaxation comes from visiting my family okay and i think it's because because i hanging out with friends to some extent can give me that relaxation feeling um but the thing is hanging out with friends there's always some aspect of feeling the need to be on and not if you're only around your close friends, maybe not as much. Yeah, I don't think it'd be the same. With you. Yeah, yeah. Like if I hang with you, like it's cool. Like I can relax and everything for sure. But if you're going out, you know, with a group of friends and maybe they bring friends and you're meeting new people, to me, there's always that kind of feeling. And maybe part of that comes from being an introvert. But there's always that need to kind of be on a little bit, which doesn't allow me to relax. And on the flip side, I don't know. I've tried hiking and. <laughs> I've tried all these other seemingly relaxing things that don't seem to relax me at all. Like I just end up <laughs> thinking about business things yeah. the whole entire time. So right. Um, and, and to that point, like you, met, you know, you mentioned you know hanging out with family and all this sort of thing. Zach has a big family with a lot of siblings, mm-hmm. so it's not like it's just Zach and mom and dad just chilling at the crib. <laughs> you know, there's like so much going on when you're with your family. It seems like that you can. You can just relax and just have options for things to do. That's what it seems like from outside perspective, at least. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's the, the fact that, like, if I'm, for example, hiking, like, my brain defaults to feeling guilty about not working on business stuff. Yeah. Whereas if I'm with my family and I was working on business, my mind would feel guilty about working on business because why am I not spending time with my family who I don't get to see that often? So from that, from that standpoint... Uh, that definitely helps a lot too. Just having that kind of built in to hanging out with your family, right? And as a as a Type A driven entrepreneur, how do you balance the? On one hand, you want to drive, create, like grow your business, grow your business, constant growth. Let's see how big this can be. Let's like do everything we can for the business. Versus, you know, this burnout thing can be real. How do you balance that? Is it like? completely intuition for you is it, I know you've done some different schedule things like but how do you balance that I was just gonna say like for me it's always tough like mm-hmm. you want to do as much as you can to grow a business like I know at times it's like you want to just work on it exclusively and do nothing else and then you're like wait I have like friends a girlfriend like family <laughs> like other things to being a human being than growing a business but as a type a driven guy like how do you balance that yeah, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> it's definitely a struggle. It's, it's a definitely struggle. a struggle. And I know it, in the past, it's been even more of a struggle where it's, um, with, I would put off other parts of my life and work more on business because business is something that I can control, I feel like, because I've already had success with it. And especially, I used to be very um, introverted and I've worked a lot on really opening up my shell and getting better at meeting people and everything. But back in the day, I mean, it would be like, oh, I could like hang out with this new group of people, but that's kind of like, you know, you get nervous and what do I say? What if it's awkward, you know? So then you have the excuse of, oh, I'm just going to work on my business or I'm just going to work on piano more, which to be honest, probably helped me build my business a lot (laughs) back in the day and helped me get really good at piano Yeah. um, because it's like an excuse that you have to go back to. Uh, But at the same time, like that's not really a healthy life to live in the long term. Um, and honestly, nowadays I have a lot less social anxiety than I did back then. I yeah. feel very confident hanging out with people, but it's still a struggle where you feel sometimes you get so excited for your business and you just want to work on it the whole time. 
and then you go for a week and you just yeah I've seen and I've absolutely seen you go through this where you just want to just grind all day and I know for me I'd go through that phase and then eventually you kind of start getting like lonely and it feels like you know oh I got so much done but then like who do I share it with like yeah and then you kind of balance it out with hanging out with friends and it definitely is a struggle to balance everything um and I'm at the point where honestly I switch it up a lot sometimes I'll do the whole work four hours and that's it and then a lot of times I'll go and do what I call like a hell week where it's like okay for this week I'm just like forgetting about everything else I'm just gonna grind you know especially if I'm motivated I just watch some movie read some book and got all jacked up and bought some new idea and I'll just grind for a week and just like ignore everything else in my life and then I'll you know after that I'll be a little bit burnt out so it makes sense to kind of come back to a more normal balance but I think it is kind of a uh, changing process yeah I think there's no right answer to that question I have to ask I'm always curious about that and you, different entrepreneurs different like business people have different answers to that question and some people I've heard say like if you're excited about a project just go and work on it just do it because otherwise when that wanes, like you want to get as much progress as you can done while you're <laughs> yes. super excited about it, because it's gonna wane. Like you're gonna have less excitement at some point, right? But if you can like make crazy amounts of progress during that excited phase, then again, seeing that success wants to push you, you know, you, helps you push you forward. So like even when I think about my stuff, it's like to your point, the harder you work, the more progress you make. So it's really hard not to work hard. Like once you see that, like oh, I get more views, I get uh, you know more like every, everything in the business when I put more time into it. Mm-hmm. When I do put less time into it, the numbers go down. Like I took a, a vacation to Cabo and it was like, that was so much fun. It was a great time. My numbers sucked that week. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, so you like balance that. Like in the long term, you're kind of thinking like, okay, but what does it matter? Like you had a great time there. And that was the point of life of like enjoying being in the moment completely. But then the business suffered. So it's just an always back and forth constant battle i don't know how you solve it i don't know how people deal with it to be honest yeah i think because there definitely is a balance of like sometimes you do got to work when you don't feel like it for sure and you definitely like there definitely has to be the minimum but i agree with you 100 percent that when you're super excited about something like yeah don't put on the brakes like ride that out as far as you can because and especially like now that i quit my job and realize like i mean you can't like i have if I get eight hours of sleep, I have 16 hours during the day. And it's got to the point where you realize it's not a time issue, it's an energy issue. Yeah. Because, I mean, I find, you know, unless I'm like really jacked up about something, it's hard to work on something for more than four hours a day. It is. And I think most people that, you know, work 80 or 40 hour weeks would agree that, okay, there's a big portion of their day that they're not really getting much done and it's more going to meetings or answering emails. Um, so from that standpoint, it's really a lot about energy management than time management. So whenever you hit that kind of wave of energy, like, yeah, I agree. You got to ride that wave, ride that out as long as you can, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true though. Cause if you're not like, yeah, you, you have to work when you don't want to at some time, like sometimes Mm -hmm. you can't like succeed. I feel like if you don't do that, like sometimes like, I really don't want to, but you you know, you know, the progress is going to happen. You're going to make things happen in your business if you do get that done. So you end up getting it done, but you have to do that sometimes. But mm-hmm. yeah, ride the wave for sure. In your business, so I know you talked to like about kind of getting to that point where you finally quit your job, which is just tremendous. And I think a lot of people aspire to do the same thing. Uh, depending on what I do after business school, uh, I will maybe be in that same position. But 
how did you then take that from new entrepreneur, just you know, quit your job, whatever, to continuing to grow the company and deciding where you want your business to go? What have you done to grow the company since? Yeah, so since I've created a couple other courses and eBooks, that kind of stuff, and then also spent a lot of time on the marketing and building out the, the email autoresponder, working hard on ads, creating webinars and that kind of thing. Um, and also taking a lot of online courses that have helped me grow a lot. Do you remember any specifically that might have been helpful or do you not recall the specific ones? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think the biggest skill that helps for any online business is learning copywriting. Because basically, and a lot of people that are normal businesses, you know, they'll say sales is kind of where the rubber hits the road. And copywriting is basically sales in written form. Um, and the, the, I've taken a couple courses. One was called AWAI Copywriting. Um, and it was a little bit old school. I mean, they'd have like the old school sales letters. And, but the best exercise to learn from that, it's a weird exercise, but it works. You literally take these long, those long sales pages you see in sales letters, and you literally take a piece of paper and you write it out word for word, their exact sales letter. And you do it 10 times. And these are long sales letters. So one sales letter to get through the exercise might take me like an hour. Um, and I did it on 10 sales pages. Whoa. But it, it has this weird effect on your mind where you start to like feel the same things that the person that wrote it was feeling. And you start to like get it. And you can learn copywriting and a lot. I've seen a lot of blog posts and stuff that have like the bullet points like uh, you should have a sense of urgency. You should have this. But I don't think you really learn it until you feel it. You know, it's like one of those skills you have to feel all the nuances. And that was the best thing I did was copying those sales letters. And then as you're copying them, also like you'll get halfway through and you'll see how they worded something and it'll hit you. You'll feel it. And half the time I wanted to buy the products <laughs> after writing it down 10 times. I was like, yeah, maybe well, I need a, like, like some random maybe thing. I need that, a dog sitter or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have a dog yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you'll see the points that hit you. And every time that point hit you and you feel it, you think, okay, how could I write this in a way for my course that makes sense or my product that makes sense and it would be captivating to people that are reading it. Yeah. So copywriting was a huge skill. That was one of them. Is there anything else in terms of courses? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. So I took that one and then there's also one called Autoresponder Madness that was, it was more of an email, it was kind of an email copywriting slash autoresponder course, but it if you don't know what autoresponders, it's basically a series of emails that people get, marketing emails. Um, and he had a really good way of actually tying all the emails together and making them into a story. So you basically, how you get hooked on like a Netflix show using those same principles and cliffhangers and stuff like that to try to get someone really um, hooked on your email series and really engaged with the stories you're telling as opposed to just selling stuff. You know, with right. email. So you put hours upon hours into literally just working on your copywriting skills. Yeah. Because you're going to use it over and over again. If you think about like how many emails you've written. Yeah. You use that skill tremendously like over and over and over again. So and and honestly, every video you put up on YouTube, that's copyright. You write, you, I mean, script, either you yeah. write the script or if you're improvising it, it's still. You're thinking about those. It's the copy things. that sells it, you know. Right. No, exactly. Um, what else do you think has helped? How to grow? Uh, I took yeah a course, a couple courses by Digital Marketer, which is some other company out there. Um, I've taken a couple courses from them. I've taken a couple of Facebook ads courses, but I didn't really feel like any of them were that good. Um, 
And yeah, those are, I think those are the main courses I took. Okay. And then going, going from, like I said, kind of the first, the first points of when you quit your job, obviously that's a lower revenue than you're doing now. What do you have plans for in the future? Or is it just a matter of growth? Do you have certain like targets, like, you know, two times where I'm at now, three times where I'm at now. And if you do have those, like how you decide on those and what those are, what those targets are. Yeah, this, the, the targets are kind of arbitrary. Okay. Uh, mainly just, I'm making enough money where I can live the exact life I want to live. You know, I don't need the Lamborghini in the garage or the Ferrari. Like, I don't care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, making enough money where I can pay rent and pay all my bills and have extra money to save. Um, so, all the other financial goals I have, which I do have goals to grow the business. Honestly, it's more of a, I don't want to say an ego thing, but kind of. But I don't know if it's, it's more so like... Like, like LeBron doesn't need another championship ring. Right. It's like, what do you need another ring for? But it's the challenge of getting to that level. Yeah. Um, and especially like whenever I read books on marketing and business or, you know, biographies on people who are very successful, it kind of makes you want to get to that next level. Right. Um, so yeah, definitely. I mean, I would love to get it to a million dollar business in two years, which is a very revenue, far reaching goal. Business. Yeah. 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 Which is a very far reaching goal, but um, I think it'd be awesome. It'd just be cool. Yeah, and to that point, I was something I wanted, wanted to talk about was that that type of thing where how do you decide between a lifestyle business um, or like, you know, trying to do corporate or trying to build a larger, more scalable, like software business, not to say like the next Facebook, but you know what I'm saying? Like a, like a multi-million dollar, such billion dollar company. Like that's, a, that's two, they're different mindsets. Now, obviously you can't be like, uh, I want to build a billion dollar company now. Start like it, you don't have that, but that's always something that's interesting to me in terms of thinking about what you want a business to become. Because if you're listening, you're a spring entrepreneur, or you've like you, you just thought about entrepreneurship, you kind of have to have in mind where you're trying to end up. Not that not that you need to be that specific where you're like, oh, I need a number, but you kind of need an idea of like where is this heading, or where would you like it to head? Because you can start a business that is a service business and requires you to work 80 hours a week to get the lifestyle you want. Or you could have another business that is something that scales like like your membership site where you can work like one or two hours a week and still live the lifestyle you want, just a lower level than maybe the other one. But have you ever thought about that before or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my I've always tried to create a business where I have to work at the least in it as possible. That way, <clears throat> if I'm working in it, it can be used to like push forward to new things and not, it doesn't have to be stuck in the business. Um, and so I've tried to keep it very, very streamlined. Like for example, I had an idea uh, back in the day of maybe like hiring piano teachers and like they could teach, you know, people that like the courses, they could get one-on-one -on -one instruction and I could have this like team of teachers. But then it was kind of like, okay, but that's going to involve a lot of management on my part. That's going to involve a lot, a lot more work on my part. And even though I could make more money off that, it's not going to add to my lifestyle because making more money isn't really going to make me happier, but having all that, the extra time and the ability to travel and the ability to, you know, spend time with the people I want to, that's really what's going to make me more happy. Do you think there's going to come a time where you're going to keep working in this business, creating courses and products, right? And you're going to run out of course and product ideas. And you're going to think of one of those ideas you just mentioned. And you're going to be at a spot where you're like, 
there's really nothing else you could do in the business <laughs> where you're set lifestyle wise, you're set financially. Do you think there'll come a time where you'll be like, okay, maybe I will pursue that now that you're just like, well, what's next? Do you think that'll happen to you? Well, I've already kind of gotten to the point where I don't want to make any more courses on the site. Okay. Uh, the reason being is I have so many courses now. I'm already at the point where some people are almost more confused where they're like, which course should I take? Mm, yeah. um, and I'm kind of at that break even point where I have so many courses. It's like a good selection, but if I add any more, it's just going to be way too confusing for people. Right. Um, so now most of my time involves the marketing and working on different marketing aspects or making the course I already have even better and adding stuff to that or adding more, you know, free lessons and stuff to the free course. Right. Um, but honestly, I don't think I would add anything that forces me to spend more time on it. But if that makes sense. Oh, that does make sense for sure. I think how it happens though is you do one thing that adds like three hours and then another thing that adds like, oh, it's like another hour. I'll just do that. And before you know it, that may happen. But if you're very conscious about it, it won't happen that way. Mm-hmm. But I always just think about this, like, you're 27 years old right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do this for five more years, and you're saying, oh, what, 10 more years? 15 more years? Mm-hmm. More, more marketing? I see what you're saying. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I always kind of just think in my head, obviously, you know, you got to walk before you can run, whatever, that type of thing. But how do you think it'll progress? Or how, here's the thing. how do you want it to progress? Uh, well, one thing that I want to work on a lot more is um, really marking myself as an artist and not just a piano teacher. And I mean, pretty much 90% of people that get into music, I mean, you don't get into music because you want to be a teacher. You got into music because you want to be a rock star. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so I really do want to work on building myself up as an artist and a piano player as opposed to just a piano teacher where kind of my branding and my niche is at the moment. And I really do enjoy teaching it and especially because I figured out all these little tricks. It's fun showing them to people and it's fun showing people, hey, if you just structure your practice a little differently, you could literally like solve this problem that you've been having for weeks. And it's fun getting the emails from people that are like, oh, this really helped me, that kind of stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, I also want this side of me that's that wants to be the artist and, and that kind of stuff. How are you working on that side of things right now or recently, the artist yeah. side of things? Yeah, so that, I released a piano album um, about a year ago. No, probably nine months ago or something. How do people get to that? How do people find that album? Uh, if you just type in Dark Ivory, Zach Evans on YouTube, okay. it'll pop up and then I'll have links and, and stuff. And what is that album exactly? So it's a piano album. There's like... It's original music, piano yep, album. original, original okay. piano album. Yeah. Okay, so what else are you doing then as an artist to grow or like to work on your craft? Uh, so yeah, going forward, I'm working a lot on actually violin. <clears throat> just realizing that the kind of ceiling for a solo piano player is pretty low in terms of, I mean, for you could become a classical touring musician, which I don't want to do because um, I do like classical music and I do like certain types, a lot of Chopin and romantic period stuff, but I much more enjoy creating my own stuff. And I mean, it, if you ask anybody, name even one piano player, you know, that's, you know, besides Beethoven and people that are, de- most people couldn't even name one. And I think the ceiling for a solo piano player is a lot lower. But if I can learn violin too, there, there are a lot of people, Lindsey Sterling, for example, or uh, there's like the piano guys, which has piano and cello and other instrumentation into it. And that's, so I'm working a lot on that. Okay. What are you doing to work on that? Is it just practicing, 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 or what do you mean? Yeah. So right now my, my violin skills aren't quite there. I'm like getting there. I'm pretty close. Um, but I'm working really hard on that. 
Actually, I had a very humbling experience <laughs> recently. Tell me about it. So what I was looking it? up. So I told you before, I like to do these like little mini hell weeks, as I like to call them, where I just spend a week and just immerse myself in one thing. So I'm like, you know, I need one of these for violin to kind of boost me to the next level. Um, so I was looking up like week long kind of violin camps and stuff like that. And so I found one on Berkeley's website, which Ber- Berkeley is a very famous music school in Boston. And it was like ages 15 and up. So I was like, oh yeah, like 15 and up. So it's <laughs> Berkeley College of Music. It's probably going to be like college students and maybe a couple high school students that are very, really talented, gifted, you know, yeah. yeah, very gifted high school students. So, you know, I pay the <laughs> tuition, I fly all the way there and I show up and I'm checking into the, you know, I stay in the dorms and stuff and I literally get there and there's like a bunch of moms and they're like 16 year old kids <laughs> and basically like, like 70 to 80% of the entire camp was like high schoolers. And I was like, I was like the awkward, like older dude like, at this <laughs> violin camp. And the worst part was like, most of them were better than me. Because Berkeley is like, you know, expensive college. So most of this, these kids, our kids have been playing their whole life. Their parents put them in, you know, their parents want them to go to this camp so they can make connections at Berkeley and get a scholarship or something. So I was like one of the worst people at this violin camp learning with these like <laughs> high schoolers. But honestly, I got a lot better at violin. You know, it was a very humbling experience. But sitting there training violin with everybody who's better than you kind of makes you feel like crap but at the same time kind of pushes you and like motivating too I yeah imagine. very motivating it's like you have to like see that person that's just that much better than you it's almost like if you're uh like the best player at your high school and you play in their like another school in your, your division or whatever and they just like rock you and then a player like outscores you and it's way better than you're like oh wait a minute there's more than just me and yeah you play a turn- <laughs> AAU tournament and then you're like Oh man, <laughs> this is another level. Like it's that same type of thing. It seems like. Yeah, like when you're, when you're little and you're like, which people on my middle school team are going to NFL? <laughs> well, probably these five people. <laughs> you realize, like, yeah, the NFL is like a little out of like everybody on this team's league. Right. Like if you're lucky, you might have one out of like very, entire, very yeah, yeah your entire school right. like even get close, even get a tryout or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. But now learning learning violin, so you have teacher or what are you doing to learn violin yeah so i started out with um learning stuff online okay just um, like your 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 trainees basically. yeah 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 and uh you know yeah so now i do have a teacher too well i had a teacher and then i didn't i'm very i'm very uh hard on my teachers i guess just because i spend so much time practicing if i feel the teacher's not getting me the progress that i want then i'm going to move to another teacher so teacher i had i had her for three months and I'm going to move on to another teacher now. Okay. Um, How did you find your teacher? Just curious. Uh, I actually contacted the teacher at UCLA because I figure, you know, a college professor is probably going to be one of the best teachers. He was too busy, so he referred me to this other place. I went to the other place. Uh, but the other place is a place that kind of has a lot of teachers that they contract. So I don't know if it was a place. I just ended up with a teacher that wasn't a good fit. And, you know, maybe it, it, was, a, it was a teacher who was very oh, good job on everything and very pump your ego up. But I'm the personality type. I'm like, I don't need a self-esteem boost. Yeah, I got like, that covered. Yeah, I need somebody to tell me like, yeah, and some of my best teachers, even my piano teacher in college, I mean, I remember walking out of some lessons like red hot angry because he was basically calling me out on everything I was doing wrong in the lesson and just being like pissed off, but at the same time, very motivated to go practice. And right. 
it, that's a style of teacher that fits really well with my personality. Yeah, I think so. it's important to find that right person, even if it's not the first person, which it probably won't be the right the first person. Yeah, as a yeah. coach, realistically, like just playing the odds game. Like, what are the odds that your first teacher is the perfect teacher for you? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, like you probably need to find someone or like explore multiple options to really know. And I kind of feel like I, uh, in college, I kind of lucked out by getting a great teacher without even looking for one. Yeah. And it almost, it hurt me a little bit in a way going forward then. I just kind of assumed, oh, how you learn something, you just get a teacher and they're just really good and help you. And then going through life realizing, oh, there's like some teachers that could 10x your progress compared to another teacher who might be setting you up with bad habits. And, and like now realizing, yeah, it's like, do a little bit of research and then like just accept the fact that you might go through two or three teachers before you find one and that's part of the process of getting better at anything. Right. And as a musician, so you play obviously play piano, violin, what other instruments do you play? I play a little bit of guitar and drum set, but not not anything I'm especially proud of. (laughs) (laughs) Just for some sick beats, that's all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What is the, what's the goal on the musician side of things for you? Like, what do you want to be doing? Do you want to be playing shows? Do you want to be traveling? What's the goal? Yeah, I absolutely want to be playing live shows, and okay. um, that's probably the biggest thing because the obviously I'm making enough money off my website to support myself, so it's not really the financial motivation. So there's a the creative motivation of like writing songs, which is fun, um, but the biggest thing I think I'm missing is the the excitement of playing that live show. Is that you just you can't get it with teaching that same adrenaline rush. Um, that you can of playing live shows. So you imagine playing live shows as a violinist or a piano player or what exactly? Yeah, it'll probably be mostly violin. Violin. Just okay. because, and I'm sure during the show, there'll be times where I go back on the piano and stuff like that. Okay. Um, piano is just, it's the best instrument, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we can stop there, everybody. Uh, that's all I really needed to say was piano is the best instrument. You can't know from the unbiased person. <laughs> No, but obviously my heart's with piano, but I, and one of the reasons I like it is because it's a standalone instrument and by itself it can sound amazing where you take a violin and play it by itself with no accompaniment, it sounds a little bit lame, you know, but at the same time, I I don't think piano is a great melody instrument that can stand out above, you know, the sound of drums and strings and other orchestration where violin is perfect for that. How are you going to find a band? What's your plan for that? Or why do you think? I mean, hopefully this podcast is listened by a few people. This is pretty far anyway. But yeah, how would you approach that? Yeah, honestly, I'm, <laughs> I'm not too sure about that at the moment. Okay. Um, part of it is I can use backing tracks to start off if I have to for any of the parts because I know um, enough about music recording and that kind of stuff and using MIDI and using different um, basically software instruments that I can basically build a backing track that has all those parts. Yeah. And then eventually I can get to the point where you know, I'm networking and meeting people and meeting other bands, and then I can actually find musicians. Have you tried to play piano anywhere in Los Angeles? By the way, he lives in Los Angeles. I don't know if we actually said that yet. Maybe we did. But have you tried to play any, like, piano places in Los Angeles? No, because mainly because... So I did that a lot in Nashville. Okay. Um, and in Nashville, originally I did it because it was extra cash when I had no cash. But, but honestly, most of the piano gigs that you get as a piano player... Are background piano gigs you know you're playing at a restaurant or or you're playing background for a singer or background for a band or you know playing for a church again background music and 
you know, the whole point of me wanting to become an artist is I don't want to be the background guy anymore. Yeah. I want to really be like the front man. Right. So really playing, you know, at a church or something like that isn't really pushing me forward towards my goals. Mm-hmm. So what the, the end goal, end, 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 end goal for music, what is it? Oh. Like every week or every couple of days touring five months of the year, like what, what do you want? No, honestly, I mean, the dream life would be tour, you know, maybe going like a month long tour okay. twice a year. Okay. And other than that, just play shows around where I live. I don't think I would want to be the full time touring That's musician. A lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Especially if you have family. Yeah. Depending yeah. on how that all plays out. I mean, if you, depending on the progress you make as you're young, you're like the, that can determine some things and how that, how that goes, basically. Mm-hmm. But. And I do think I'm in the kind of lucky scenario where I don't have to make a living off my music. So then, I where a lot of artists they tour because they have to, and I think most artists that are full time touring will tell you, I wish I could tour less. I love touring maybe for the first, you know, month of the tour, and then I'm just burnt out and I want to sleep in my own bed and have my clothes right there and everything else. Yeah, it's like anything can seem like work if you do if you do enough. Yeah, yeah, hundred like percent. I can go some deep dark places about that, but we're not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, to that point, I just want to, with the business side of things, uh, is there any bad advice you've heard? Even, I, mean, I guess in music too, business or music, any bad advice in the industry or things you've heard that you're just like, why is that being taught or why are people believing that? The biggest one, well, the music industry is full. Okay. But the biggest one, the whole narrative on the music industry is... You're just some random person who plays music and you get discovered by record. Discovered. Discovered, yeah. <laughs> and some record label head sees you playing at an open mic night or hears your CD that their friend gave them and then they sign you to record deal, you make millions of dollars and you're a star. Um, in reality, that especially nowadays is not at all how it works and that's a terrible business plan. And the, the way I've always looked at it is okay, if you wanna make music just because you love making music and it's a hobby and you're not trying to make money off of it, do whatever you want, you know, that's that's your prerogative. But <clears throat> if you're trying to make a living off of music, you're literally trying to sell something, your music and your merch and your show, to people for their money, you're, you're literally starting a business. You're literally exchanging a product for consumers' money, you're starting a business. And if you asked, any other niche in business, how to start a business. And if, for example, if someone was starting a restaurant and you're like, oh, what's your, what's your business plan? And they were like, you know, I'm just gonna like make some food and you know, I hope the travel channel just discovers me and, and they put me on their show and then everybody just comes to my, my restaurant. You would look at them like they're dumb. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, what's your marketing plan? Like. Are you gonna do TV commercials? Are you gonna do word of mouth? Are you just in a great location? What What's your marketing plan? How are you gonna get customers? But for some reason, the music industry, most artists don't look at it like that. And they see it as, uh, I just have to get discovered. And that's been perpetuated by American Idol, which don't even get me started on all those shows, which you know they always have the little snippet of, oh, I was just a girl singing at the bar. And then, you know, I, this is my dream, and then they make it. When in reality, most of the singers on American Idol and The Voice and all these shows have had years of voice training, have been grinding, trying to make it themselves as a musician, and now they go on the show. But of course, the show wants you to think this could happen to anybody. And it's just, they lucked out and they got discovered. 
Um, I think that's the biggest myth because it makes musicians think they don't need to learn the business side and they don't need to plan their career and it's just going to happen to them someday. So what exactly do you think musicians should do then? So just learn more about the business side, learn more about personal branding, more like social media side, like what types of things you think they can do? Yeah, so first things first, like if you're a musician, you have to have a product, which means you have to have a song, songs that are good and then get them professionally recorded. Unless you're you know, a maestro at recording or you have a friend that does recording, um, you have to have an album that's a good product. And that's kind of like the baseline, but you know, you'd be amazed how many people don't have a prof- professionally recorded album and then think they're gonna sell their album that's not that good, but it doesn't make sense unless you have a good product. And then once you have a good product, now you have to market it, which you have to have some sort of strategy, whether it's um, like my strategies for sure, once I launch my, 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 al- my album, violin album and stuff is gonna be using ads. But there's a lot of different strategies out there that don't involve that. Some people tour super hard and they just, that's literally how they build their fan base. Some people, um, I know one guy, he like makes YouTube videos, but he makes them super entertaining. Like he had one where it was like, nerd, he's a rapper and it's like nerd raps, rap battles, dudes in the hood or something like that. And he, you know, dresses up in these nerdy outfits and he goes to the hood and he rap battles and he got super popular off that. And it's, it's a great marketing strategy, but you have to have some sort of marketing strategy other than my music's good and it's going to get discovered. And then you're going to have to spend money on it. You know, whether it's the money of getting professionally recorded videos, creating your album, running for ads. Um, And a lot of musicians are looking for the freeway. But if you look at any other business, again, I go back to a restaurant. If your friend was like, I'm going to open a restaurant, but I don't want to put any any money into it. I'm just going to do it the freeway. You'd be like, how are you, you going to hire your staff? How are you going to buy your food? How are you going to pay the rent in your building? Like, it doesn't make sense for any other industry. And music's the same way. Yeah. You, have, you have to have a huge time and, and money investment going up front. Yeah. And to your point, though, I mean, even when you started, I mean, you're making $35,000 a year when you started putting 1000 bucks a month into ads for your, your business. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Like, obviously, that's very frugal. You're living in a place that's, inexpensive enough to be able to do that. You weren't living in Los Angeles at the time with like ridiculous rents or like San Francisco, New York. But at the same time, like any musician, if they're trying to make it, they can live frugally. That's what a choice they have. Like work as a, a waitress or a waiter or do whatever you have to do to get extra money to put towards the business is what seems like would be the best way to do it. Yeah, and everybody like, everybody has that story. Whenever I read about successful people, it's always... Yeah, I was sleeping on my friend's couch for three months while I was trying to get it off the ground or I was sleeping in the office. I could barely pay rent. So like I got this odd job and that helped me pay rent or, you know, something like that. Everybody has this like random story about when they're starting off. Yeah, no, I I agree. It seems like everyone does kind of have that thing. So few people make it that you got to do, you got to put yourself in the best position to win. And those are some of the things just from the outside looking in. Obviously, I'm not in the industry. But I'm very aware of different things, and I can see that that seems like the best way to do it, to give yourself the best chance. And if you're not doing that, you're just going to be behind everyone else. And to your point before, then it's just a matter of sticking around. Like, get past those 80% of people who won't do marketing for a musician. Okay, then the people who do it, getting past them, who are, you know, the 80% of people who are really good at it. You know, those types of things as well. 
as you manage all of these things, so as you've grown your business and you've grown as a musician and practicing as a musician as well, I want to talk a little about productivity and habits because I think those are crucial things that lead to success. Whether that's you know how you, the amount of sleep you get, whether that's the type of food you get, the exercise you do, um, how you de-stress, like I kind of mentioned already. Let's start with your morning routine. Do you have a typical like morning routine you go through that helps you get ready for the day or you just kind of roll out of bed and roll? How's it go? <clears throat> yeah, so I basically rotate my morning routines. Um, I went through a phase when I was starting out where I would always listen to these podcasts and they would talk about morning routines and this is the best morning routine and this is Arnold Schwarzenegger's morning routine. This is this guy's morning routine. And I would get all jacked up and I would start a morning routine and I would notice this pattern after like a year of doing it where I'd get jacked up I do this morning routine for like, you know, the first week it would get me super motivated and I feel great. Second week it would be like, oh, this is good. And third week it would kind of feel like it's doing nothing. And then fourth week I'd kind of give up on it. <laughs> and then like a month later I would hear another morning routine podcast. Oh, this is the morning routine. And again, that same cycle. First week it's great. Second week it's okay. Third week it doesn't do anything. And I started to realize that like the, the main reason it was working is okay so it's here's, here's the way i think about it to, to okay. make i think about it like like coffee right sure so if you drink coffee the first week you drink it you're gonna have a ton of energy second week you'll have a little less energy third week a little less and then eventually you're gonna have to either drink more coffee or you're gonna have to take some time off coffee and let your tolerance reset now obviously the reason coffee works is there's chemicals in the caffeine that basically hit or block certain receptors in your brain or release different chemicals in your brain that allow you to get more energy. But as you keep doing that, it's less and less effective and you basically have to take time off to let those chemicals and those receptors kind of, in a sense, recover so the caffeine will work again. But at the same time, any morning routine, whether it's watching motivational videos, looking over your goals, listening to some audio, it's also hitting different receptors in your brain and causing those to fire. So it's just not as apparent as coffee because coffee is obvious because you literally drink it and it's a substance in your body. But these morning routines are doing the same thing to your brain that coffee is in a sense. So what I realized is I need to rotate my morning routines. So I'll do one morning routine for like a month and then I'll switch it up to a completely different morning routine for the next month and then a third one for the next month. And then I might go back to the first one for the fourth month because I've had you know, two months of not doing it to kind of, in a sense, quote unquote, recover from that morning routine. And what are some of these morning routines? What, what do they include? What types of things? I, mostly, I boil it down to um, just one motivational thing and then a cup of coffee. Like, that's usually what it is. Okay. And I've tried a bunch of different ones that involve different little, like, physical exercises and different other mental exercises and stuff. What I found is since in the in the morning I have like the most energy, I want to use as much energy of that as possible working on my business and not jumping on a mini trampoline or doing something like that. Like I don't want to waste that energy doing that. And for me, the minimum effective dose to kind of get me motivated and hyped up is to do one motivational task, I guess you could call it. So for example, it might be reading through your goals and visualizing them. That's one example. Um, one example might be doing some kind of vision board activity where I used to create vision boards on a PowerPoint slide and click through them playing music that would motivate me. 
Um, the one I'm currently doing, and actually this is my favorite one, is you do a future pacing script. That's what I call it. I okay. got it from some NLP book. And what you do is you have your end goal and you record. It's basically this long audio file. So the audio file starts off with your end goal. So mine always starts off like, for example, um, I wake up in the morning. It's January 1st, 2019. And then I detail what my life looks like. So I detail I'm making this much money per year. This is what my social life looks like. This is what I've accomplished in the last six months. And I basically build it up and hype myself up. This is what your life's gonna be like. And then I take it back and I say, and then I think about the path that got me here. And then I say, I wake up, it's uh, June 1st, 2017, or whatever the date is that I'm kind of starting it at. Right, your current day. And then I'm and then I dial in, you know, I wake up, you know, I'm super motivated. I go and I practice two hours of violin. I'm, I'm white hot, consistent with it every single day. Nothing phases me. And then I'll do another, okay, I wake up. It's August 1st, 2017. So it's the next month. And I'm detailing what my days are looking like during that day. And then it's the next month. And so it, it kind of conditions your brain to think, okay, this is the end result. And now here's all the stages that got me to the end result. Um, and it's super motivating. I just put this and I record it on like a voice memo. And then every morning I wake up and I put in the earphones and as I'm just grabbing my coffee and kind of, you know, getting on my laptop and everything hooked up, I'm just listening to the script um, every day. So it's only a few minutes, like five, 10 minutes maybe? Or? Yeah, mine, I think it's like nine minutes and 30 seconds to what I'm doing right now. When did you first start doing that type of thing? Either like the future pacing or just the idea of the morning routine type of thing. Do you remember when you kind of started that or how long ago it was? It's been a while, definitely like back in the college days. Oh, really? Like yeah. Back to college, you mean? You still were doing that type of thing? Yeah. It was a lot less. Like, the original one was just read your goals every day, which I got from, like, Thinking Grow Rich. Yeah. The book. So, I used Classic. to do that. And then once I started listening to podcasts, um, then there's a ton of them about, like, morning routines for this. And I got, like... like Tim Ferriss. So yeah, yeah. A bunch of Tim Ferriss stuff. Tim I, and Tim. I got all... And I get so jacked up about these morning routines, you know. And then eventually built up, like, I would have these, like... Like 45 minute morning routines at like, <laughs> like there's one point they got like that, that long. And then it was like, like all these gratitude exercises and, and physical exercises and like all this breathing, deep breathing, meditation, like stacking on top of each other. You're doing like the six hour morning. Like, it's my morning the routine. Six, yeah, for real. And now it's lunchtime. <laughs> and now it's lunchtime, you know. But then I kind of, you know, eventually you figure out like, okay, what part of this routine is actually getting me more motivated and actually like getting me quote unquote like results? Yeah. Which, hey, hey. Go yeah. Ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Which to me, like the, the result I'm looking for from my morning routine is giving me that energy slash focus, motivation, whatever you want to call it, that kind of willpower feeling that you have. Yeah. And from an outside perspective, seeing your progression over the years, I will say one of the things that is probably helped you a lot is that exact thing. Like you always have goals. You always have that type of thing where you try to put yourself in that spot you want to be in. I think it's, it's it's helpful to be clear about where you're trying to get to. And even if it changes, it doesn't matter if, if it changes. It matters you have something to mm -hmm. aim. You have some type of aim and you, you move forward and you want to adjust it and that's fine. But you have to have that that target, first of all, in your head so you can actually make it happen, which is the thing, grow rich type of thing for sure. That's right there. I think you, you need to have that type of thing. Right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise you can't like, succeed. It seems like you need something. Yeah, I always think about it like, uh, so my grandpa has this like cabin up north in the Wisconsin woods 
which basically <laughs> it's actually kind of because uh, uh, we would always beg my parents to go to Disneyland and they had six kids and my dad's a gym teacher so they'd be like let's go to grandpa's cabin instead <laughs> oh yeah grandpa's cabin let's yeah. do it but uh, but I loved it up there. Honestly, it was a great yeah, place. I've been there it was, once. I've been there once. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a ton of. Uh, I love it. Um, but there's a lake there, and one of the things we do every so often is let's swim across the lake, and it's you know really far to the end of the lake. And the thing about me and swimming is like I'm not. I mean, I can swim, but I'm not like good. And I I, I have no, this no thing. Michael Phelps over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have this thing where I'll like slowly start going off diagonal. You know, instead of going across the lake, I like. You know, swim for a while, and all of a sudden I'm like facing sideways, like going the complete like side direction, and I have to look <laughs> up and I have to swim again. Um, but you have to figure out the balance of how often you look up, because if you take like two strokes and you look up, then it's like you barely made any progress. And you got to do two more strokes and look up again. But if you go too long without looking up, then you might be going sideways, and it makes no sense. And that's my equivalent to when I was first starting off building up my YouTube channel and I spent two years posting, you know, 80 something videos and then realizing, Hey, there's no way I'm going to make a living only posting these videos, making money with YouTube ads. That was me swimming for a long time without putting my head up. But it's like, you can't, you must've been drowning at that point. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I always think about it. It's like you go for a while and then you get a little bit off track. And you put your head up and you reevaluate everything and you're like, is this taking me to where I want to go? And you got to put your head down and grind again and you got to grind for another month and you stick your head up again and see, you know, where you're going. But that's what I kind of think about in my head, like the metaphor for it. Yeah, that's everything. I don't think I've ever heard you say that before, that type of metaphor. As long as I've known you. That's a new one. Yeah, thank probably you, not. Thank you, podcast. <laughs> God, you never get, see, this is thing, you never get to deep dive conversation into, with, with really anyone, this type of deep dive. Of a mm-hmm. podcast of like an hour and a half, two hours, like whatever you want. Like we talk a lot all the time. Yeah. Probably for more than an hour and a half at different times. But yeah. for most people you never get that chance. And in this type of format, it's you can't just, you can't just interview your friends randomly. That'd be weird. Yeah. If, yeah. if you're like just talking in conversation. But if you have a podcast. But you have a podcast <laughs> it's an excuse to interview your friends. Which is like just what I'm using it as, which is fine with me. Um, one thing with entrepreneurs and type A driven people and myself included in terms of like just struggling with this is sleep. How many hours of sleep do you get per night, Zaggy? I would I would estimate um, if I'm getting like a full night's sleep and I don't go out or anything, probably like seven. Okay, seven um, typically. But if I go out, usually what I do is I'll sleep like six, and then later in the day I'll take like an hour and a half nap. Okay. Because I have this thing where I wake up kind of around. Even if I try to sleep and I'll wake up around eight. Okay. So I could stay up to like two or three in the morning. I still wake up at eight. And it doesn't make sense to try to force myself to sleep in. So now I'll just, you know, do four hours of work. And then after that, all of a sudden I'm hitting this wall where I'm dead tired. And I just nap after that. How important is sleep for you? Or have you felt the effects? How important for you, like personally, have you like noticed like when you get less sleep versus like your optimal number? How does that affect your like business planning, your business work, and also your musician work as well? Oh yeah, definitely. It definitely affects it a lot. Especially, I feel like if I can, if I go one day with not that bad of sleep, it doesn't hurt me too much. But that second day, if I go two days in a row, it like kills me. Like the next like three days are like messed up for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think sleep is absolutely important. From one, obviously just being able to focus and getting more done. But then also I've noticed I just don't enjoy it if I didn't get enough sleep. So even if I can like push myself and just willpower myself through the work session, I'll be like really just 
frustrated and tired and not enjoying it where I could do that exact same task on a full rest of sleep and feel that sense of accomplishment. I'm like getting stuff done. I'm willpowering through it. Like I'm a beast, you know, get that kind of feeling. Um, if I've got enough sleep that night. Is that just a matter of like setting alarm or, you know, setting alarm to make sure you at least get those seven hours or just like sleeping in and not having an alarm every day, you're an entrepreneur and now you have the freedom. How do you determine that exactly? Oh, I always do better with an alarm. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay, so you alarm. And I've definitely gone through periods where I've slacked a little bit on that. Um, but I, yeah, if I wake up with an alarm, it's like, it's just the, the day is starting now. Let's go. So you just start at like seven hours or eight hours. Eight, what do you do? Like just whatever you go to bed, boom, eight hours. And then you set the alarm. How's that work for you? Yeah, I do seven, seven to seven and a half usually. Seven to seven and a half. And I try to get to sleep relatively the same time every night. Yeah. It makes it easier. And yeah, so I do seven to seven and a half, but if I stay up past the point where the seven hours would be past eight o'clock, then I'd set it at eight o'clock. Does that oh, make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Cause I, and I don't sleep longer than that anyway. I yeah. usually wake up before the alarm. Yeah. It's one of those things for me, at least I've always, I always go back and forth on that because to your point of that, like you're like, Oh, if I sleep past eight o'clock, I just set the alarm. I'm going to get up at eight o'clock. Right. For me, I have that same thing, but it's like four o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I just prefer, it's weird because honestly, even like, okay, so I've been in Los Angeles for like a week or two now and the NBA doesn't actually start. So my I'm, MBA program has, doesn't start until like July 30th with classes, orientation 23rd, whatever. But I, I've had the ability to like adjust my schedule and do what I want, right? But like if I get up at like six, seven, eight, for some reason, I already feel like I wasted the day where mm-hmm. I'm like, I know normally that like I could just had all my stuff done by like noon and then not have to worry about it. Whereas then it pushes on and on where it's like, okay, now instead of noon, in my head, that changes my whole schedule where it's like, now it's just three o'clock. Mm-hmm. Now it's just four o'clock. Okay, well now that nap I would normally take right afternoon is now four or five o'clock. You know, and it messes everything up. So there's definitely something to be said for having a set <coughs> time to get up. Not saying it has to be four, but like a set time to some point. If that's your eight o'clock threshold like you have, as long as you're still getting seven, because you can always nap later in theory, mm-hmm. depending on if you have a job, obviously you have to like, go to work and come back at like five or six at night. But I almost would rather get up at the same time every day and adjust later if I had to. Obviously, you're aiming for those enough sleep, but mm-hmm. I think I, it seems like I would still rather do that. I don't know what that is, though. Yeah, I think it's a thing, and I don't know the, the, the science of sleep behind it. But I've, I've heard it from a lot of other people, like entrepreneur type of people who say, yeah, I'd rather just always wake up the same time and I'll figure out the, the rest of the sleep later. You know, I'll take a nap or whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it just works better. Everyone has their own schedule. They figure it out. But uh, what about for like, nutrition and exercise? Do you have a certain routine you follow or how has that affected you as you've kind of been a musician and also grown a business? Like how does that play a part in your life? Yeah, def- exercise is definitely something um, that's become a habit for me. And uh, I usually for exercise, I'll get super jacked up on some new workout plan that I either found online or my friend told me about. So, and, and, and since it's it's kind of nice to have exercise as something that I do set goals for, but they're not super important goals because I'm already in shape. You know, I don't have like some like ripped eight pack or anything, but I'm Just already seven in, of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not like super ripped or anything, but. I'm to the point where I'm happy with where my body composition is. Um, so I can still set goals, but it's kind of fun to set goals because it's not so much pressure of having to achieve the goals. Um, so it's it's a very nice kind of release from uh, the business side and being a lot more 
worried about hitting everything and hitting my marks. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, for diet, I wake up, I don't eat anything. My, my friend told me about this intermittent fasting thing. And like the first time I heard it, I was like, that sounds stupid. Breakfast is the most important meal, like all this stuff. And then I finally tried it one day and I had more energy than ever before in the morning. And I kind of realized, yeah, maybe there's something to this. So now I wake up, I have a coffee that'll take me to about noon and then I have a big, big meal at noon. And then usually I take a, a nap, whether it's 20 minutes or if I didn't get a lot, a lot of sleep, I'll take a longer nap and work out during that kind of mid midday phase. And then a lot of times I'll work after that or have some social event. And then sometimes I'll eat another meal around uh, like right before I go to bed, which isn't technically intermittent fasting. Um, but what I figured out for me is about six hours plus after I eat, that's when my energy is like perfect. No matter what I eat, like even if I eat like McDonald's, like if I wait about six hours, I'll have a lot of energy. Yeah. And you know, I try to eat healthy just from like a health benefit, but for some reason to me, it, it doesn't seem to like I have that much more energy if I eat a salad or if I eat a burger and fries. Once it's six hours later, I'll kind of be at that same level. Interesting. Same type of thing regardless. Yeah. Hmm. I mean... There's obviously science behind a lot of different things, whether it may be your digestion or whatever it may be. Like one of the things is when you once you pay attention to that. So even you just saying that right now, a lot of people wouldn't be able to know that, but because you're paying attention to it and you like notice things, you can optimize your day, you can optimize your schedule. That's something I know we've talked about a lot over the years of optimizing every day because we obviously want to accomplish a lot of different things. But in terms of that, it's like one of those things. Where like if you just start paying attention. Just pay attention to where you spend your time, to how you feel throughout the day. How do you feel off of eight hours of sleep? What if seven was actually better and you had the extra hour made you feel better? What if you got up earlier? What if you stay up a little bit later? Like you pay attention, try things, and you'll you'll optimize your day, your schedule, and then optimize your life in everything. Yeah, and sometimes it's like something small that once you realize it, I mean if you could have like what like 1.5 times the energy every day. Like that's not that much more every day, but that's huge. Like if you compound that over a year, like how much more are you getting done? How much more are you achieving in every area of your life? You know? Right. And that's, uh, that's the same type of thinking. I actually just watched this, which is a very hype video. So there's a Kobe Bryant video, talking about his work ethic, right? And his trainer, one of his trainers, does this like Nike summit thing. And he's like, man, one time Kobe had me up at 4 a.m. And I was like, another day of work for me. (laughs) <laughs> by the way, by the way, Justin does really wake up at three or four a.m. every morning. Um, I lived with him for a year, and I, that was definitely a thing. Also, I am friends with him on Snapchat, and constantly see the snaps of him pouring coffee at three a.m. with a little filter on. <laughs> so that is a real thing. That's real. Hey, I do my best work in the morning. No one, there's no distractions at three a.m. Mm-hmm. Like four a.m., no distractions at all. You have plenty of work time. But what the Kobe thing was about, though, he was saying that, and Kobe's like, yeah, it just makes sense. And the guy's like, well, what do you mean? And Kobe was saying this. He's like, okay, if I would have gotten up at, let's just say, I think he said 10 o'clock, right? And, you know, which is pretty late. But uh, I guess NBA players maybe do that because they're like, out later. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's done my first training session at 12. You know, start at noon, uh, training for like two hours. Then take a little break because your body needs to recover, right? So, you know, he trains again maybe like four or five for like two, three hours. 
then it's like he just has dinner and then like he's with the family and he gets done. Like that's two sessions, you know, putting four or five hours of work. That's great. He's like, but when I get up at 4 a.m., I get to the gym by five or six. I get a session in, still take a two hour break. I'm in the gym again at like nine or 10, second session. <laughs> then I'm in the gym again, that same one, one to three or like two to four, boom. And then I might be able to squeeze in another session. And that's like, you know, a couple hours more training time that one day. Then he was saying this. Okay, that's one thing, right? So I'm already getting like more training time than you're getting in if I get up earlier, just with how it works out. Yeah, in theory, you could get up later and you could work out in the evening, yes, but it tended to not be as like energized in the evening mm-hmm. for that late. He would say, but you compound that over a week, over a month, over a year. In five years, if we're doing the same type of workout schedule, I'm doing my schedule, you're doing your schedule, even if we were the same player, I'm getting tremendously better than you. The same compound effect thing. And that's how he builds, you know, into like hall of fame career because he just started from a young age and they they talked to him about like how early did you start that he's like yeah high school i was gonna be like four or five a.m in high school dang and, i didn't know that yeah working out with his coach would like help rebound for him and stuff and he was the number one player coming out of high school obviously got drafted you know like top 15 or something um to charlotte and trade to lakers but as he was saying he did that back in back in even in high school so it's the compound effect of like yeah optimizing your day is one of those things that's why I would think that's why it's so important every day because like that matters over time like if you have the right habits in place now nutrition uh, exercise with with your morning routine whatever it just you're gonna eventually succeed mm-hmm. it's just a matter of time and you're really putting yourself in that best position it seems like and then you put, like, boom you're a perfect example then it works out mm-hmm. and then you have your own company and you're doing whatever the heck you want to do which is so great. <laughs> yeah, and if you do it, yeah, if you do it early in the morning too, it's like there's no excuses then. Yeah. Or if you try to schedule it like five o'clock at night, it's like, oh well, like my friend texted me and it's his birthday, so like I really should go to his dinner because like I don't, I'd feel bad if I don't. But if you just get it done in the morning, boom, like you have nobody texting you, right? No, nothing else to do, right? And we've we've so we've gotten very very granular on different details. I think it's important. It makes it seem more real. It's like okay. Zach is just a guy who, you know, he created this, this very successful business, but there's some things in there that I could do, you know, someone else could do. That's why I love details. But let's just step back a little bit, go more like, you know, 10,000 foot view of things. Um, and looking at like success in general, what do you think is, why do you define success either in your life, in your career? How do you personally define success? Yeah. So a lot of people do the um, I mean, technically, it's kind of just whatever makes you happy. I kind of hate that answer because it's it's too vague and not specific enough. So for me, I've always divided my life into five categories uh, for probably like the past like eight years or something. So health, money, friends, girls, and whatever you're passionate about. Or it'd be girls or guys, I guess, whatever yeah. whatever you're into. Relationships in that Yeah, way. basically relationships. Intimate yeah. relationships, yeah. Um, so for those five areas of your life, if you can basically succeed at all those, then I would say, okay, you're successful. What does that mean? So success in those mean? Yeah, so you have to kind of define it, which some are easier than others. Sure. So for example, health, um, the easiest way to define it is probably like your weight is a big one. So you could say, I want to be at this weight with this body fat percentage. But then there's also areas that are harder to define, like I want to have a good diet. You know, which is a little, you could say, I want to eat vegetables X amount of times a day or whatever, something like that. Um, it's a little harder to define. Um, but for me, I look at it like once you're at 
80% at one, um, one of those skills, then it's time to move on to the next skill. So for example, I'm at about 80% for, for fitness. I'm like, I'm in shape, you know, I have a little bit of muscle and everything, but like I said before, I don't have like a rip. You had some gains though, man, let's be honest. I did have some gains in the last couple months. Yes, over there, I've seen the gains. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, the, so for me to get to a 10 would be, be the guy with the shredded eight pack. But then the more time you spend on that, the less time you have for these other areas of your life. So to me, once I get to like an eight in one area, it's like, okay, let's put this on the back burner, still work on it, but not go gung-ho, guns a-blazing, this is my one goal. Because right. it's really hard to focus on more than one or two big goals to me at, at the same time. Yeah. Um, so then money, which to me it's not only how much you're making, but how much are you time, time are you spending making that money. I mean, if you spend you know, 12 hour days in the job you hate and you make 100 grand, that might suck compared to making you know 70 grand but you only have to work four hours a day or you work 12 hour days in a job you love and you're passionate about um so usually i would define that as you know obviously the money how much money are you making but then also how much time you're spending making that and what kind of job you want to have making that um then the next two friends and relationships are a lot harder to define <laughs> very hard to define those are the ones success. i really struggle to define and i've tried different methods of kind of, cause I'm a super analytical person of, okay, I want this number of close friends and to define a close friend, it's someone you'd feel comfortable, you know, texting to go out for dinner. And it's just, I found that doesn't work as well. And really for those two areas, it's, it's a lot harder to define. Um, and it'd be defined more by me, um, making more of an effort. Which I hate even saying that because <laughs> it's just such a like not well-defined goal. Like, yeah, I just want to have a good social life and like make more of an effort in my social life. But I don't know any other way to define it. Maybe someday I'll figure out a better way. But as of now, it's just kind of like I kind of know where those parts of my life are at. And I just kind of rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, and then passion. You know, this is obviously different for everyone. So for me... This is the music side that's not um, the business. Yeah, the, me teaching piano, but me uh, being a musician. Right. And for some people, their passion is, for example, an entrepreneur, which is roped in with their business. Or their passion is they're really passionate about their social life and they love like building a big social circle and having events and stuff like that. Uh, for me, it just happened to be something that doesn't align with any of my other goals, right. specifically. So basically, that's a lot to define success by. So basically, you define success by having an eight and five categories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I would say that's a pretty so, fair uh, assessment. I'm just going to tell someone, if you have an eight and five category, you're successful. Yeah, which, yeah. Which implies then that you need to work on all facets of your life and be, I don't know, not necessarily balanced, but have, but in a way balanced. Because mm-hmm. like, yeah, if you had just had all the money in the world, but you had no relationships or like, wasn't your passion or anything, like, I wouldn't define that as a successful life. Yeah, yeah. I would 100%. not. I 100% would not. If you had a billion dollars and no friends, like, that's not right. very successful. Right. Like, how... So, I mean, people... People's views are warped on that. I think there's different levels in terms of the financial side of it. But I think those are really good things for how you define success. Is, yeah. Are there any people you think about? They when you think about success? And they may be rich people. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I like to say Elon Musk. 
just because well probably because I'm reading his like biography right now. Um, although from what I've heard, he doesn't have a very good work life balance. Yeah, so it's tough to say. But yeah, he, so maybe. But if he loves his work. Yeah, yeah, it, it really does definitely depend on like everybody's different, which is another vague answer. But yeah, you really. I mean, obviously, everybody has different goals and what they define as successful. Um, I'm trying to think if there's someone specific. It's like that you think about when you think of success. I mean, Elon Musk. I'll buy you some time. Elon Musk. Okay. <laughs> Elon Musk. Like, I think any entrepreneur, business person, is gonna probably say like Elon Musk because he's just done so many things, built so many different companies. Like, it's hard not to think of him as being successful because of that. However, if you're someone who defines success in a different way by like, yeah, having leisure time, time with family. He's had multiple divorces. He mm-hmm. works all the time. Again, I don't know the guy, so I don't know how much he works, but he mentioned 100 hour work weeks for many months of the time. So, like, he's obviously done that. And, like, but he loves what he does. That's obvious. Or he has a mission enough. So, like, that, I would still think, I would still define him as success. And I think that's the first thing that pops in your head. But it was almost a question of, like, who's, like, the third person that pops in your head then? <laughs> yeah, that's it, true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say because you don't really know. I guess, because you can always, you know if somebody's rich, and you know if somebody's has a six-pack or is in shape. Sure. So, like, those two kind of aspects are like, okay, you know if someone's very successful in those two, and you could say passion, too, depending on, you know, yeah. what they are, if they're an artist or something like that. But then it's very hard to know if somebody's social life is good, if they're truly happy, if their relationships are good, that kind of thing. Like, you don't really know. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of hard to say. It's hard to say, but I think that I mean that I I like your parameters, and I've kept those in mind with those five different areas, and thinking about that repeatedly of like, yeah, you want to get to eight in all those, or you want to have that balance, like being good in all those, and being aware of, am I slacking in some of those departments, or like, do I just need to do a little bit extra in some other thing? Because like we've said before, I I feel at times like yeah, I could work on business twenty four seven. Yeah, when you're just jacked up, right? And just like, and but you know, then you think, okay, well then, yeah, you're not here on front, even like. You then move to Los Angeles here. It's like, I want to work on my business a lot. But realistically, like, you're, it's, a, it's a time for two years where you're back in school and you have all these people around and those relationships can be lifelong friendships. Mm-hmm. You can't work 100%. on your business the whole time. If you did that, it would be like, I mean, what are you doing? Um, so you have to kind of think about all those things when it comes to that. So even though the name of the business and podcast is Just Go Grind, that's in the context of hard work gives you anything you want in life. Everything you want in life, essentially, in a matter of time. Mm-hmm. But that includes like the life you want to live, whether it's having freedom in your life, like you have right now with the, you know, having a business that's you can work remotely from, you know, don't spend that much time on, whatever it may be. You're working hard for a reason <laughs> to get mm-hmm. the things you want and set yourself up. Even like whether it be a relationship or whatever, like you're setting yourself up that through the work you put in, and that's something I want to get across to people listening, uh, anyone who checks out the. The blog as well it's the same type of concept and that's what I really want to drill drill home with everyone here as we kind of wrap up here soon we've almost two hours it flew by to be honest with you. yeah I did. Mean, it always flies by in chat I feel like we've talked like four hours before it's like wait what like don't think about it but is there any advice that you would give there's two different groups here uh, you actually already kind of talked about musician what they should do so let's go business people any advice for an aspiring entrepreneur or business person yeah, I think the biggest thing is just kind of dive in and start doing it. You know, um, I think it's important to to learn. What, what I would do is 
figure out what exactly you want to do. Even if you're not sure if that's the end goal for the rest of your life, just figure out something you're passionate about. Um, and then get one course, you know, do a little bit of research and just kind of like see if you can find a course that, that looks good, get it and just start applying it to your business right away. Um, cause I do think, I mean, honestly, cause since my business has been doing well, a lot of my friends like are always asking me for advice Yeah, and you know, I used to give like very in depth, like, Oh, here's what you want to do. You want to set up this autoresponder, blah, blah, blah. And then like, I'll talk to them a month later and they didn't even start on anything. And honestly, like the first thing is like that I think most people missing is they're just scared to take that first step and they're scared to put in the work of taking that first step and really just saying, I'm all in, I'm going to try this and see if it works. Uh, and I think even if it doesn't work, which it probably won't, if it's your first business venture, yeah, I mean, not. my first one was, as you know, the little workout website we had six pack ah. back in the day and made a. Uh, Made 60 bucks, but I think Google AdSense didn't pay out until we made 100 bucks. So <laughs> I think we're in the in the red on that one. Yeah, we did not <laughs> win with that one. Yeah, but I mean, you learn so much just from doing that about how online marketing works and how to set up a website and stuff that the skills you'll have forever. So yeah, yeah to that point, we, we have to talk about that. Okay, yeah, I'm game. I don't think we can, we can gloss over that because I think that was an important step for both of us. Mm-hmm. Something that... Anyone could have that same type of moment. So, me and Zach are sitting in David Kaczynski, our friend, uh, his basement in Brown Deer, Wisconsin, watching The Social Network. Yep. The most hype entrepreneurial movie of all time. <laughs> I have literally just watched it again last week. Bar none, the most hype. It's the most hype. Like, it's going a million dollars. A billion dollars. <laughs> like, that movie was a game changer. Absolute game changer. We're watching that movie. And we're just both thinking like, oh my, this is, we're so hype already. Like, I remember sitting in a recliner and turning to Zach at the end of the movie, like, let's make a website. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I will never forget that moment because that, that was the, the catalyst for so many things afterwards we did. Like, that got us into feeling so comfortable with websites and online and figuring it all out. That was the, like, that was the thing. So we ended up learning like, HTML, CSS. From, from scratch, like learning how to make a website from scratch, learning how to code. I don't have those skills anymore. I know like very basic HTML, CSS, but like not much anymore. But we both did that. And I remember, Zach, you were like at going to school and like using Dreamweaver, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh and we got Dreamweaver, like we bought a jank off Craigslist. <laughs> Some dude, we met him in like a parking lot and he I forgot about gave that. us this like blank CD. <laughs> And we're like not even sure if it was going to work. And we like gave him like 50 bucks or something. Because we didn't have money for the full Dreamweaver. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. So That yeah. was the most sketch thing ever. <laughs> it was super sketch. But we made the website. I remember we went through so many different like challenges. and Stuff wouldn't work. And it was so annoying. But we just persevered. because we. That was one of those things where we just wanted to make something cool. Just to make something. Mm-hmm. At the time, that's all we were thinking. We are just like... Wait, if we made a website, we could like show people our, our website. Mm-hmm. That's all we it were was, thinking. It was so cool. It was, so it was like, the coolest this thing. This is ours. And that's all we were thinking about was like, oh my God, just to show someone our own thing that we made. We're so proud of that. And it just, it just stemmed from one, just having the curiosity, wanting to build something, and then just persevering to just do it. Mm-hmm. Which is what anyone trying to start a business, 
same thing. You know, you know, explore those curiosities. Start, take the first step, because that led to us learning all about like, you know, what platforms to build websites on. We used Weebly at one point and after, we're like, wait, we, we don't even have to code from scratch? Yeah. <laughs> we just Weebly? That was like before even they had like uh, Squarespace and all those things. They weren't even like really popular at the time, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, they're all new. Right, and we're like, wait, we just like drag and drop build? We're like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's a game changer. Right, but then we kept, you know, we kept, we kept looking into different things once that happened. Mm-hmm. And that's what I remember about it. And that, but I do. Before that, though, we were always driven in in sports. But that was the first time we really got into like creating our own thing, doing business stuff. Yeah, I remember it was the first time because we would plan it just like we planned workouts. Like, oh, here's how we're gonna build it. Oh yeah. And I remember it was the first time it kind of clicked for me. Like, oh, all this, all all this, these skills I'm learning in sports of how to plan workouts and like improve and get better. Like, I could use this to make money. This is kind of cool. You know what yeah. I mean? And that was back in like 2011. Mm-hmm. And then the movie came out in 2010-ish, roughly. That was maybe 2011, like where everyone's on like DVD or something. Um, that was a long time. It was a while ago. But like, yeah, that really just showed us the way. I mean, guys, motivated, inspired, and then you just took action. And who knows, like, you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now, what your, where your business will be, if you have another business. I hope to have a business by that point in time that's like still like booming, like, you know, doing something where I'm doing it full time. Um, but it's funny to think about that started from like a basement in Brown Deer, Wisconsin. I know, it's so crazy. All those things, that's nuts. But Zach, where can people find you? Where should they go to learn more about you on the web, my man? Uh, easiest way would probably just type in like Zach Evans Piano on YouTube and that'll pull up a video and then I have all links in the description to get to all my Instagram and website and email and all that stuff what what are the things that you use more most i guess you have yeah you have instagram you have to twitter or no you have a twitter no i don't not, not i think i have one i don't really use it yeah yeah honestly probably my email yeah uh or just the contact form on my website yeah um, would be the easiest way yeah i don't really instagram i don't necessarily um stay up with all the time and stuff like that so that'd probably be the easiest way one more time what's the website um well i guess you could just go to bestpianotips.com um, or just type in Zach Evans Piano on YouTube if okay. that's easy to remember. He's got one billion subscribers. So <laughs> yeah, <check> I wish. <laughs> Aspir- aspiring to it. Hey, if everybody that listens to this subscribes, you know, maybe soon. <laughs> Please do subscribe to Zach Evans Piano. <laughs> like, comment, share, subscribe. <laughs> oh, everyone, uh, well, thank you, Zach, for being on the show. Everyone, thank you for listening. If you've listened this far, I commend you to the whole episode. That was a lot of fun. I always enjoy doing these. You can find all our show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. Support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please leave a rating review in iTunes. It definitely helps the show. Thank you for listening. Talk to you in the next episode. Bye.